everybody. Welcome to another Comic Boom Comic Source collaboration. I'm Jace, here with Rocky from Comic Boom to talk about the DC Comics for the week of October 17, 2023. We've had a couple smaller weeks. We're back to a big giant week, but that's okay. There's a couple books that uh, Rocky and I were talking before we started. It really didn't do it for me, so I'm not going to have much to say about them. They just weren't for me, so obviously we want to stay positive. Nobody sets out to make a bad comic, but uh, yeah, some of these just missed the mark for me, um, but others were solid. I, I think one kind of stands out, sort of head and shoulders above the rest. Maybe, maybe two. Now that I'm looking, so it'll probably be uh, within between two for my uh, pick of the week. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing, although Rocky and I do have our disagreements from time to time, specifically Gothamore, or most recently, <laughs> uh, I have a feeling that uh, the books that we didn't like uh, or, or didn't. You know, that didn't speak to us and the books that we like that are in contention for our books of the week. I have a feeling they're going to be the same this week. So, uh, yeah. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I, yeah I, I agree with you. This is the thing is, there's so many comics this week. It's one of, it's one of the bigger weeks. It's, you know, it, it's frustrating in the week leading to New York Comic Con. Uh, it, it sort of frustrates me that DC neither DC nor Marvel released like really any big a lot of books and I, I don't know why that is maybe they don't want people to talk about comic books during the week of the New York Comic Con and now at the end of the New York Comic Con the week following New York Comic Con we get all these huge releases of all these DC books and some of them I really do like uh, but but yeah there's definitely some stinkers here that will be we'll be talking about and of course uh, uh, I understand well you'll mention it uh, there's a lot of there was definitely a, some DC mentioned some things at the New York Comic Con that maybe I, I may or may not join you tomorrow when you when you talk about that. But uh, yeah, it's another hit and miss week here with DC with a lot of titles. Yeah, there was some news that came out, some DC news, uh, some independent. The, the, the biggest news for me that came out of uh, New York Comic Con were independent stuff. The Jeff Johns stuff, the Rick Remender stuff. Tom Hardy's got a project he's doing with yeah. some people we're talking about that that looks so good it looks so amazing to me I, I don't know if it just will if it will be or won't be I, I honestly could care less about talking to Tom Hardy I want to talk to the creatives behind it uh, because it has me really excited there's even a website that's really cool but anyway yeah we'll talk about that tomorrow uh, we'll talk about the DC stuff I didn't hear much Marvel news but um, there was a little bit so yeah I'm hoping to do a little bit of a roundup uh, just it's been uh, even though uh, I didn't go to New York Comic Con I still had a very very busy weekend I was on call for my day job um, so I'm still getting all caught up with that and uh, I was hoping to do the the New York Comic Con episode today but it just didn't work out so uh, I say today we're because recording this on Monday so I'll record it tomorrow I'll drop it tomorrow and uh, if you missed New York Comic Con we'll give you the news and a little bit of opinion about it, but we're going to dive into the books for this week because there are a lot of them. Again, uh, try to be very brief on some of my thoughts on these that didn't really speak to me in the interest of trying to keep this under three hours. <laughs> we'll <laughs> kick it off with uh, Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong, which uh, was announced during uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Had me really excited. Brian Buccioletto, who I'm a big fan of, is the writer. Christian Ducey has some incredible, like, sort of classic feeling superhero art. Louis Guerrero on colors, very primary, also suits that uh, feel of classic superhero uh, stories. Uh, Richard Starkings and Comic Crafts, Jimmy Betancourt handled the letters. And uh, this was just a whole heck of a lot of fun. And there are, I'm going to be buying into the gimmick thing and pay a little extra. There are a couple of versions of this book <laughs> that have covers. There's one with that. When you open it, it gives you the Godzilla roar. 
And there's another one where when you open it, it gives you the King Kong sort of roar, bellow kind of thing. And that's just cool. Like, it's totally cheesy. And it's like one of those green cards back in the day where it's like a little uh, button battery that powers it and whatever. It's, yeah, totally cheesy. And I... I'm going to buy, I don't know if I'm going to buy one or if I'm going to buy both. I don't know if I'm, I think they come polybag. I don't know if I should even open them or if I should leave them sealed, but it's just, it's fun. And I want, I, I saw Brian Buccioletto on Instagram a few weeks ago, just, you know, his, he got his preview copies, his comps and he was showing and it's just fun. It's just cool. So um, for me, that, that really sums up this book, the story, you know, it's not, super original or whatever we've got the legion of doom which which feels like a classic legion of doom there's even a meta um comment from buccioletto in the scripting where he mentioned super friends and for me that's my favorite version of the justice league in animation when it was the challenge of the super friends it was the super friends going up against the legion of doom uh and i i can i even have it on my phone like the intro where the guy's speaking uh, and he says, the Legion of Doom, in like a <laughs> super deep voice. It just brings back so many fun memories. That, and that's what this feels like. This feels like an episode of Super Friends. You don't need to know anything continuity-wise or what have you. It's uh, it's the Legion of Doom trying to find a way to take out the Justice League. They break into the uh, Fortress of Solitude. They're bickering amongst themselves. Things go wrong. They get transported to this like monster island-type place. Not specifically the DC Monster Island, not named that anyway. So we're not sure. They travel in time, different multiverse, different dimension, or, or just a different place on Earth, what have you. But uh, there's, a, there's a lab. There's access to all kinds of monsters. Bad things are going to happen, right? They're going to unleash King Kong. They're going to unleash uh, the Legion of uh, – or uh, 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 Godzilla. And they're going to do Legion of Doom things. And the Justice League's going to have to come together to uh, – to stop it. Now, Bujoletta does put in some character work with some Clark and Lois stuff and with uh, the way their impending uh, engagement uh, kind of affects the rest of the team in terms of everybody being happy for them and what have you. So it does, you know, give some context and, and some, bring some humanity to these characters a little bit. Um, and I, I'm sure it will factor in with consequences, what have you, because Batman at one point does mention, uh, well, are you sure you, you know, you do this, you're putting her in danger, you know, Lois, because you're Superman and what have you. So, you know, again, not the most original uh, idea because I'm sure at some point Lois is going to be in danger from Godzilla or King Kong. W will we really go Godzilla or will we really go King Kong? Will it be, you know, Lois in the hand of King Kong as he scales not the Empire State Building but the Daily Planet Building holding Lois in one hand? <laughs> I'm all for it. I don't care if it's uh, derivative or what have you because this is just fun. And again, the colors and the line work from Christian Dusset, like it's just beautiful. Like it feels ageless, right? It feels timeless. It feels like this could fit into any era of DC and it just works. And uh, yeah, I just keep going back to fun. Like I just had a big grin on my face when I was reading this because I liked the, the jokes from Buccioletto. I liked the, the dialogue. I liked the scripting. The pacing was really good. Yeah, you could kind of see what was going to happen. It was kind of predictable, but that's okay. It, it, it was predictable in a way that I wanted to because it's it's heading in the direction I want it to be. It's heading in the direction of fun where the Justice League is going to be battling King Kong and freaking Godzilla. Godzilla and King Kong are going to be battling each other. It's a three-way brawl, uh, and I, I can't wait. I can't wait. And yeah, add in the gimmick cover, and I'm all for, I'm all for that too. And there are some fantastic covers, even um, the non-gimmick covers. Like there's one where... Um, Batman's wearing bat armor, kind of um, reminiscent of what we saw in Batman versus Superman. But it reminded me, I was like, okay, at some point in the story, is it going to be like uh, Pacific Rim? You know, <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought of, yeah. Yeah, where Batman's going to be in a giant mech 
fighting, you know, Godzilla because Godzilla's a kaiju. So, hey, if this is uh, it, that's the Jim Lee cover, and if this is um, kind of predicting or, or um, you know, giving us a glimpse of what's to come, I'm all for. I would love to see Batman in a in a giant. You know, Batman he uh, he prepares for all contingencies, right? Maybe he's even prepared for a giant kaiju coming out of the sea, and I'll be like, oh, I got this, and go get in his giant bat mech and fight Godzilla. I'm all for it. So, yeah. uh, anyway, did you enjoy it as much as me, Rocky? Because I, I loved it. I, I did. One of the things that's I think quite apparent about this comic is that it's it's clearly meant for a completely uh, a new audience. Uh, you could literally know nothing about. DC continuity at all. You could read this blind going in, not knowing anything about the DC universe. And this really goes from scratch. It's very apparent that what, what uh, writer uh, uh, Bussolero is doing does very well, uh, accompanied by Christian Ducey's art is it, it it's, it's formed around Superman's Clark Kent's, you know, proposal to Lois Lane. And of course you can almost tell the central conceit, the, the issue starts off that way that he's proposing to Lois Lane, but it keeps being interrupted by monsters. First it's Titano. And then of course, later we know it's going to be Godzilla and King Kong. And, uh, I, I was, I actually thought that it was a little bit unpredictable. I love the fact that the Legion of Doom, a uh, part of their machinations is Lex Luthor takes the Legion of Doom and they want to invade the, they want to steal some weapons from the Fortress of Solitude. And it ends up that Toy Man ends up screwing up and ends up stealing a, a gem, some sort of magic gemstone that he's unaware of. L- Luthor wants to steal a mother box and Orion's sled of, of the new gods. And they end up, uh, you know, Toy Man ends up screwing things up and then they get transported to Monster Island. Skull Island, and then uh, we know that ultimately they're going to end up coming back and probably uh, because of Toy Man who makes a wish on this stone, wishing these monsters back to the to, to the to our world, and all chaos is going to ensue. And meanwhile, there's a lot of character work here, and that's what makes the story engaging is the character work. Where if you if you're new and you don't know about the details of the relationship, if you don't know the type of person that Hal is, Hal likes the single single life. He tries to talk Clark out of it, maybe you know, maybe stay single. Uh, if you don't know who Kara is, well, Kara's character is well portrayed that, you know, that the, the diff, you know, but Barry Allen, of course, is in love with Iris. So you get all these different characterizations and they all work. They all come together very well. Uh, you know, you can tell the, the writing team and the, you know, it's a, it's a good combination, but Bussolero and Christian Ducey, they, they know what they're doing here artistically and, and script wise. This feels like the Justice League. And I think it's, it comes together quite well. And it's six issues long. And I think it's going to really make for a really great trade. And th- they don't need all the gimmicks selling this. They don't need, I mean, who, who needs to buy a comic book that roars at you when you open it up? But I suppose everybody and their dog, I think DC is even limiting the supply and not, you know, not every comic shop's even going to get one, I don't think. And if they are, it's probably going to be ridiculously priced. But, you know, I, we live in a day and age where even maybe potentially really good comics, and this started off entertaining. I don't know if it necessarily needs a gimmick to sell it, but that's the age, that's the age that we live in, I guess. So you're not buying a, one of the ones that roars? Uh, I don't think my retailer is going to get it because I, I think that they're going to be. Uh, I got. I, I heard the rumor that they were they had to allocation. Allo- allocation. Yeah, so. I think, yeah, I don't think they've limited it. Um, purpose. I think that pe- even though it was announced and promoted, I-, I think just not a lot of people ordered them because I think retailers and we get it. Money's tight, you know. I think retailers were maybe a little too um, conservative, and then reorders came uh, came in and ate up all the overprint. And so, yeah. But don't worry, there'll probably be subsequent second printings, and <laughs> I'm sure. will, and and I'm sure Marvel will be doing this for a uh, you know a Fortnite yeah. book or something because uh, yeah, if it's successful, we'll see it other places as well. 
Uh, okay, up next we have Batman White Knight presents uh, Generation Joker. This is uh, from a Sean Murphy story, Katana Collins and Clay McCormick on script, Mirka Andolfo on art, Alejandro Sanchez on colors. Uh, this is the last of uh, the Sean Gordon Murphy verse Batman stories for a while. Uh, Murphy himself talking about it, I think on his Instagram was saying how uh, he has some other ideas that he might get to in a few years. <laughs> so he's working on um, Zorro and some other creator own stuff and what have you. So <clears throat> I don't know that this was a high note to go on on. It, it wasn't necessarily a bad series by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, the strength for me of the Sean Gordon Murphy verse uh, is is Batman himself, and we got very very little Bruce Wayne in this story. Uh, we got a lot of Joker, we got a lot of Harley, and we got a lot of the kids. And the kids are likable and they're fun. And um, this did give some more redemption to Jack Napier, who this the version of the Joker that um, Sean Mur- Murphy has created is to me, much more interesting and uh, much more compelling and much more relatable than any other version of Joker I've ever really read. I, I don't actively dislike it like I do so much of the other versions of the Joker that I think are overused, but it is because he, he does have some humanity and he does have some compassion, he does have some regret. So that plays out in this final story. I won't necessarily get into the story beats about it because um, honestly, it, it didn't grab me. It wasn't compelling because as I said, it, it this just didn't have what I enjoy the most about the Sean Gordon Murphy verse, which is Batman Harley Quinn to a lesser extent. This was focused on the kids. And like I said, well, they are likable. Um, and I appreciated more redemption for Jack Napier. It's just not what I'm really that interested in, in reading. I will say the Mirko Andolfo art and the color work was absolutely fantastic. Um, well paced. And I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about there not being a, a white knight or Sean Gordon Murphy verse, um, title coming out because we've, we've pretty much had one after the other with a few short breaks in between ever since the first uh, Batman White Knight came out. So I, on the one hand, I think um, it's it's good to give it a break, to give people a chance to miss it. On the other, uh, there's still a lot to be explored there, different versions of uh, familiar characters in this uh, you know different corner of the multiverse for DC which is interesting because we get a glimpse of the Sean Gordon Murphy versus Lex Luthor here, uh, which is something I'd be interested in. And, you know, we haven't seen the the Superman yet as well. That would be something else I would be interested in uh, seeing Sean Murphy's take on that. But um, yeah, with this going away for at least a few years, we, we won't have, it. but again, maybe it'll be that much better when it comes back. I certainly wouldn't want him phoning it in and giving a, you know, half effort because he's busy doing something else or overextending himself. Um, and not giving his absolute best, whether he's penciling or just writing it. So, yeah, overall, I think successful. Uh, but I, I know fans of the Murphy verse are probably going to be disappointed. It's to be the last title for a while. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on it? Wrap up uh, successfully for you? Uh, yeah, it, it relatively did. I mean, I, I got the gist of the story that they wanted to tell. I mean, Jackie and Bryce, the the the, the son and daughter of the Joker and and Harley Quinn. They, you know, the Joker, Jack Napier, his the sane side of the Joker wants to have one last adventure with his kids before he sort of dissipates in the in the in the ethereal online space and ultimately ends up being saved. Uh, 
he's willing to sacrifice his life to sort of like inject himself or in, insert himself into this giant robot that he built when he was the Joker and that originally had two faces mind in it. And we had this, you know, 2.0 face, <laughs> two face. <laughs> uh, and uh, Riot, of course, is concerned about uh, who has a relationship with the poison ivy in the, in the Murphy verse. She's uh, she's concerned about poison ivy. Batman ends up out of the blue. Batman's never been in this six. He's almost never been in the six issues. Batman shows up at the end and actually says, Saves the day. He saves Jack Napier, and he ends up saving the life of ultimately saving the uh, contributing to saving the life of Ivy, and and then so there's a happy ending all around here. Harley ends up back with Bruce uh, Batman, uh, and of course Batman is telling them, "You guys better leave because the FBI is going to show up." And it ends like I said on the cliffhanger. We know that there's Agent Diana Prince, John Stewart, and Wallace West all are all agents of the F of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the the director of the FBI is revealed to be Lex Luthor. So. That the ending actually interests me more so than how it ended itself. Although I'm really curious at the hints that maybe uh, Bryce, uh, the son, is probably has more of a darker or crazier side. Everyone assumed that Jackie, the daughter, had a, was was going to inherit maybe some of the insanity of her father, but it might be Bryce. There's hints of that this issue. So there's little gems, little 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 Easter eggs that maybe that might hint at future storylines that I liked. And uh, but the things that intrigued me the most was like an alternative take on, especially Diana Prince. And her relationship with Jon Stewart. Not that they have one, but I'm just curious what their plans are. And uh, the promise of things to come is what I really like. Because we know that there's there's going to be a Superman. Of, uh, there, there is a Superman, of course, that Bruce Wayne, Batman, was hired by the FBI. Or supposed to be working with them to investigate the, the, the Kryptonian issue. With, with There's a Superman in the Murphyverse. So a lot of cool things to come. And I, I share your sentiment that I want the Murphyverse to continue especially if dc is focusing on these new elseworlds at the as they indicated at the new york comic-con i would like the murphy verse to at least maybe tangentially be an, an aspect of uh you know of elseworlds or, or at least i guess uh you know, play with that because it's Murphy verse is probably the success of the Murphy verse may probably have given rise and reinforced to DC the idea that these alternative universe takes along with Dark Knights of Steel, for example, are what fans are responding to, at least more so than some of the mainstream titles. So all in all, I was I was pleased with this series and I think it's done a lot to uh, build confidence into it. What will be, I think, um, more Elseworlds like tales. Yeah, I should say that I, you know, as much as this was just okay for me, it, I did enjoy it more than I thought I would. Um, like I, I didn't think I was going to like this because it was so focused on the Joker. Um, but this reminded me that this is a different Joker and I did enjoy it more than I initially thought that I would. Cause again, it, it really focused on Jackie and Bryce, like you mentioned, more so than even Jack Napier or Harley. And certainly Bruce was, was barely there, which for me was a, a knock against it, but he's had plenty of time in the spotlight, I suppose. Uh, all right, let's move on. Next up, we have Cyborg number four. This is written by uh, Morgan Hampton. We've got pencils by Sean Damien Hill, inks by Anthony Fowler Jr., colors by Michael Atea. Uh, what'd you think of this for issue four of six? Uh, well, uh, Morgan Hampton, uh, the writer Morgan Hampton, continues to uh, weave a, an interesting tale. I, I'm, I, I remain pleasantly surprised. Uh, nothing that's really blowing me out of the water, but uh, I do say that that uh, I do like that uh, he's. I'm I'm more invested in in uh, 
Cyborg's, you know, backstory here than than before in, in any previous series. Uh, Cyborg has always think been kind of a character that I've never really been uh, necessarily a huge fan of. Uh, he was always most interesting under as a as frankly just an, an average member of the of the Teen Titans. But I like here that we got. Um, you know his sort of his arch enemy, this Marcus character. Uh, there's there's been this um, uh, this Marcus Wilcox has been sort of data mining and using uh, humans uh, genetic information to to build it to infuse it into an app. And meanwhile, uh, Cyborg's father has been resurrected uh, as uh, as so as sort of like um, sort of like um, uh, and he's sort of like a he's within. Uh, he's in. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the the phrase here. This uh, there there are these. He's a synth, or his his character's like uh, his father's like an AI character now, almost like Oracle living inside a machine. So his his uh, cyborg's father is uh, Silas is sort of like the ghost in the machine. And meanwhile, there's another AI construct of some kind that seems to be uh, controlling the, the these Solace synths. These these uh, almost Terminator like robots who's who they want to uh, there's they want to their goal now is apparently to destroy this database that contains all the sort of computer like souls of the various people that own this app. So anyone that's downloaded a Solace app and Solace is a corporation owned uh, by uh, Marcus Wilcox. If, if, if you download that app that the app can access sort of like all your memories and all your all that you are can become part of the memory of this app and cyborg is working in conjunction with this Estelle Green who is a reporter who is an online sort of YouTube reporter and he's she's he he utilizes her help to try to get the message out to warn people about it and she's a potential love interest in the story so Morgan Hampton he's incorporating he's he's building on the relationship between Cyborg and his father now in a more interesting way than I think that has been done in the past he's got a potential love interest uh in this case and also in this series it's revealed that Steel John Henry Irons offers um offers Cyborg uh um uh oh my I might be confusing my. Uh, yeah, I think I am. I think I'm actually confusing yeah, my comments. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm actually. I'm confusing my. I'm confusing my characters here. But no, uh, scratch that. In any event, I didn't mind this. Uh, I, I didn't mind it. It's. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where it's headed, but very clearly we're uh, with these new synth synth um, Silas synths or Solus synth synthenoids. I, I, I don't really know where it's going, but you know. Well, we're, I guess we're three or four issues in and it's, it's interesting enough, but nothing that really blows me away, away but it's all right. You know, it didn't bother me. What about you? Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I, again, I like the, I like what Morgan Hampton's adding to the character in terms of, Hey, let's give him some clothes instead of having him walk around naked all the time. Let's, you know, let's explore a little more of the humanity of uh, Victor Stone, as opposed to a lot of other people, you know, may, maybe with the exception of at various times in the uh, very classic run from Wolfman and Perez, where Vic struggled with the fact he looked inhuman. And at one point even gets like these polymer uh, pieces uh, so that he looks human again, instead of looking uh, cy- cybernetic, but then they end up melting and it, he ends up looking even worse and can't really function. Um, so that 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 
exploration of the character side of him hasn't really been done a lot or or done very well, in my opinion. Um, not to where it's really stuck with me, at least. Because um, I think that's where the interest in the character comes from. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate seeing him go on a date. I appreciated a little bit of the jump forward so we can get some context into how um, Detroit is perceiving him. He, uh, Morgan's doing a fantastic job of sort of grounding him in, in the location of Detroit, which is which is really nice. The other stuff with the synths and Solith and Silas Stone or whatever, a bit of a transitional issue uh, from what we had last time to what's going to come. So we'll see that um, change. The other thing that I want to mention, so Tom Derenick has been the artist on this. And we've been a little critical of Tom in the past and how at various times we felt like the proportions on his anatomy hasn't been that great. I've really been loving the work he's been doing on this series to the point where I missed him on this issue. We have a different as artist. We have a guest artist. And I found myself, oh, man, I was disappointed. I wanted – not that the art here is bad, but I wanted Tom Derenick art. I've, I've, he's been doing a fantastic job, maybe the best art I've ever seen from him on this series. So the art here is fine. There's um, – you know, nothing really negative I could say about it. Uh, the, again, I just, I wanted the Tom Derenick art because I, I kind of had gotten used to seeing it on this and the, kind of the tone and feel. This art feels a little more, like it's taking itself a little more seriously, if that makes sense. Um, so the tone felt a little bit different. So I don't know if in, in a collected edition, if that's going to stand out more. And I, I don't know that Tom is, is coming back on the title. I hope he is. hope he just needed an issue off. Um, but who knows? I mean, we... We did have a couple of months off of this, um, or did we? Did this come out? I think this kept coming out even during the Nightmare uh, event, so yeah. Night's End, so, um, or not Night's End, Night Terrors. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. Uh, all right, up next we have Batman Superman World's Finest number 20. This is from writer Mark Wade. Dan Mora is the artist. Tamara Bonvillain on colors. Steve Wands on letters. I know this has been one of your favorite titles for a while. How did this uh, issue land for you? Uh, it was good. I enjoyed this one. This is one of the, uh, I think this is one of the better ones this week. Uh, we, we finally get the return of, uh, I guess, Thunderman or I guess the, the boy Thunder, which was, uh, this, this David character that was from another, was from another timeline, another, another universe that, uh, in the er earlier issues of World's Finest, he found himself on, on mainstream, uh, DC, uh, Earth and was befriended by Superman and Batman and ended up, uh, being, at the end of it being transported to another uh, universe. And and ultimately, uh, Barry Allen discovers that he's actually transported to what Barry Allen refers to as Earth-22 and what we readers know Earth-22 to be the Kingdom Come universe. And with the help of The Flash, Superman and Batman uh, use a cosmic treadmill that's been sort of jerry-rigged by Barry Allen. Usually a cosmic treadmill helps to travel through time, but uh, Barry Allen jerry-rigged it so they could travel through to another dimensional plane, uh, i.e. Earth-22, uh, where they, you know, they try to find David. And and it's a really, it's a wonderful trip down Kingdom Come memory lane. So for those of us who uh, uh, love Kingdom Come, we, I'm, I'd be surprised if one didn't really enjoy this issue. When they get to Earth-22, Batman and Superman both, they come upon a, a cemetery where they, uh, where where they come upon a cemetery where they witness older versions of themselves, the kingdom come Superman and the kingdom come Bruce Wayne uh, at the graveside of numerous of all the numerous dead heroes. Those who uh, read kingdom come know that at the end of kingdom come, there's a, there's a iconic moment where uh, Billy Batson and Shazam changes into Shazam 
and and saves saves the world from nuclear annihilation but in the process uh, hundreds of heroes and villains die in a cataclysm and and but that that sacrifice leads to a sort of a revitalized or new age of of heroes and that this this post kingdom come this is this is the this is where uh, batman and superman find themselves and they end up going to planet hollywood <laughs> which is a planet hollywood is sort of like the well, it's sort of like a, it's like a caf, famous cafe in on Earth yeah. twenty two. Yeah, Planet Crypt, Planet Krypton, Planet Krypton, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's it's owned by Booster Gold, and and uh, uh, the, the, you know the commentary and and the and the differences that Superman mentions about uh, apparently on Earth twenty two, they don't realize that there's a multiverse on Earth twenty two that they're not aware of that yet, and so. You know, Superman has some concerns that you know what, how, how, how is his version of Superman such that uh, is how is his super the Earth twenty two Superman so different than him that something as bad as catastrophic as as the death of so many heroes how could that have happened and so there's some concerns there and ultimately they do end up meeting David as Thunderman and and as Thunderman David is much more aggressive and appears to be willing to use lethal force. And at the end, ends up uh, greeting Superman with a great high degree of violence, which, and that's how the issue ends. So there, there's a lot of questions we have, you know, who is this mysterious figure that, that Barry Allen saw when he was going through, traveling through the earth, various multiverses, when he saw David being manipulated by sort of an ominous figure. We don't know who is the force behind David, because we know Thunderman will ultimately become Magog, uh, that Superman, the can become Superman will face. And a lot of... Have a lot of questions here and but i mean mark wade is just wetting the appetite where is this gonna go i don't know but uh i'm really enjoying this and any anyone who's a fan of kingdom come i really hope that they um uh, i really encourage them to um to pick this up a couple of little continuity glitches here when, when superman re- states that he doesn't think that kingdom come or, or that the earth 22 is aware that of the multiverse i don't know how that jives with the jsa story that jeff johns told in the jsa back in continuity because there's been overlap with the kingdom come universe in past dc stories already uh so i'm not sure if this is a brand new sort of history a brand new sort of rewriting of earth 22 i i suspect it might, might be but in any event that's a minor little nitpick i quite enjoyed it what about yourself yeah, I really enjoyed it too. I mean, I'm probably one of those rare people, rare comic readers where Kingdom – to me, Kingdom Come is just okay. It's not – like people just revere it. I, I It just didn't – there's nothing wrong with it, but it didn't stand out to me as like this incredible story that so many people seem to think it is. But I'm finding that I'm sort of enjoying Kingdom Come like, – like the idea of Kingdom Come more – now that we're getting context and backstory into Magog, like all of a sudden to me, Kingdom Come is becoming much like infinitely more interesting to me. It's so much more interesting um, now with uh, with what's being explored here and, and, you know, like what's going on with David that he would attack Superman. Um, yeah, it's just, again, I, I like the idea of what Wade is doing here. And the other thing that I really enjoy, uh, and we've talked about this before with uh, with World's Finest, <clears throat> some of this stuff goes back where it's you're taking a step back, you're looking at kind of the early years, obviously Dick Grayson's still Robin and that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it's sort of a timeless feel. It, it doesn't um, necessarily 
tie into any particular era of DC, which lets you read it and you don't have to worry about, you know, Gotham War or Night Terrors or any of the other stuff. You can just read it for what it is. Classic stories. Uh, and if there's anybody suited to, to tell stories like that, it's definitely Mark Wade because he does have such a, a wealth and breadth of knowledge when it comes to DC Comics. Um, so again, I, I think between that and the classic feel that the Dan Moore art brings to it, that it's just a fantastic story. And I hope, you know, we've talked before about giving Mark Wade the chance to write, you know, action comics or Superman. It's not coming at least in the next year with what announcements came from New York Comic Con. But I would hope at some point, you know, because this is probably the closest thing he's gotten to it. Um, but still, he's he's not. I don't think it's checking the, the bucket list item off for him. But yeah, I mean, World's Finest, you can just pick this up and you don't need to read any other DC books. You don't need to have read any DC books previously. You know who Superman is. You know who Bat- If you're listening to this podcast, you know who Superman is. You know who Bod- uh, uh, Batman is. Uh, and that's all you need. <laughs> you don't need to have ever read a Batman or Superman comic to be yeah. able to pick up World's Finest and enjoy it. So um, again, highly recommended. Uh, okay, up next we have Titans uh, issue number four. This is a title that you've been struggling with a little bit. I've been defending it, saying give it time, give it time. So I have issue four here, written by Tom Taylor, art by Nicholas Scott, Annette Kwok on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. We get a little bit of the fallout of um, of what happened uh, last issue, sort of um, kind of impacting the way Gar feels, Garfield Beast Boy, the way he feels um, going forward in this particular issue. He feels like with what uh, Tempest was saying, um, Garth, uh, you know, they're not really making a difference. They could be doing so much more. And so, you know, I'll give credit to Tom Taylor for tying it back in with what we saw in issue two, where they go to Borneo and fight a forest fire. Um, And I do like that idea of, hey, we're more than just the guys that come and stop the initial problem. We need need to be better than that. We need to be more than that. We need to, um, you know, be part of the solution long term by by following up and going and helping with the cleanup and what have you. So it's not, it's not the most original idea, but I'm glad to see that that's, uh, that's done here. It's also got fantastic Nicholas Scott art, um, as it has throughout. Her art is, is gorgeous. Annette Kwok, who typically colors her, is, um, is fantastic on the colors as well. Um, so that's all, that's all great. I also enjoy that, you know, we got that last page reveal that, some puppet master or invasion of the body snatcher thing going on with uh, that was, had infected brother blood and he's passing on to Garth and here it gets passed on to somebody else uh, that maybe ties into Wally's death. So there are these little threads that have been established by Tom Taylor that he is starting to pick out and things feel like they're starting to come together in, in as far as the subplots go. Um, you could make the argument that the Wally West death is more of a main plot, but it hasn't been focused on to the point where we've had a whole issue dedicated to it. In fact, I'd go so far as to say we haven't really had a whole issue dedicated to anything yet, because as much as I hate to admit it, I'm I'm starting to come over to Rocky's side and say, this needs to start moving a little faster. I, I We're four issues in now, and it still feels like there's something missing. There's not a, a kind of a big overriding theme or it just feels like it's missing something. I feel like I'm still waiting for the story to get started and gain some momentum. It just feels like it's all sort of small and intimate, which is okay if that's what you want to tell. But then, you know, I'll go back to 
what happened with uh, Tom Taylor's adventures of Superman, John Kent. And I'm not pointing the finger at him necessarily because it may, he may not have had anything to do with it. It might've been DC marketing uh, that pushed it or Warner brothers marketing that pushed it as, Hey, this is John finally, you know, confronting uh, Ultraman. He was trapped in the volcano, whatever. And then it was like a total bait and switch, right? Like he died in the first issue, if not early in the second. And it ended up being John Kent and, um, and the injustice Superman. Well, this, this was sold, this Titan series was sold to us as, okay, the Justice League is not around anymore. The Titans are taking their place. Um, and I, I, again, I've defended it saying, hey, Justice League had some smaller intimate stories at times as well. But, and again, I know we're only four issues in, but we're only, we're only four issues and I only have these four issues to judge it by. And so far it hasn't seemed to rise to, the, you know, anywhere near the level that I would expect a Justice League story to rise to where we get kind of some big, some big threats. I mean, maybe this hint of, you know, whatever this invasion of the body snatchers thing is, is going to rise to that level, but it hasn't yet. And I I just feel like it's moving a little bit too slow. Again, I've been preaching patience and I'm trying to be patient, but four issues in that's two thirds of an arc. And it still feels like not much has happened. And again, you know, I, I went over all the different subplots and there are a lot of subplots and there are a lot of smaller things going on, but yeah, I need, I need some bigger stuff. I need some bigger stuff to, to start happening to really make this feel like it's a, you know, a replacement for Justice League at, at this point. You know, I talk about some of those smaller Justice League stories. Well, yeah, it's true. There were some small, smaller Justice League stories back in the day. But keep in mind, those smaller Justice League stories happened uh, in a different era. And, and this is a different era of comics where I think people expect a little more um, bang for their buck, so to speak. Um, so, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm totally missing the mark here and, and I'm wrong, but, uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Rocky? Are you happy to hear I'm around on your side now? Well, I I mean, I, we were talking off, uh, before we, before we did the broadcast here. I I mean, I don't, I don't like when my negativity is sort of reinforced. I, I don't want to be right. I just thought, you know, because sometimes I just get impatient with storylines and sometimes that's on me. That, that doesn't mean it's a bad story. It just means I got to take a pill and relax. You know, sometimes story needs, stories need time to breathe. And, and frankly, it's all subjective. And sometimes it does depend on how I feel when, <laughs> on my mood. Right. Uh, but I, I do feel I'm getting a little anxious for the story to continue. Now, uh, there's a lot of cool things that are happening in this story. I mean, brother blood, and there's this sort of like plant invasion of the body snatchers type of thing. That's, you know, somehow this plant, like almost alien, Alien-like uh, creature is is has taken control of Garth and has now taken control of Linda, uh, Wally's wife. At the end of this issue, I thought it was pretty cool what Taylor has done. That the Titans, the the Titans uh, Tower, uh, unlike the Hall of Justice, they have a weapons room, but their weapons room is on Mars. I thought that's kind of cool. And at the and one way to protect Wally because Wally's supposed to die in twenty four hours, and they want to protect Wally, so they take Wally and they put him on Mars and. I mean, he's got to be safe on Mars, right? Unfortunately, they also put his wife Linda on Mars and Linda's infected with this alien creature. So that's not good. So Wally might be end up, so it hints that Wally might actually be killed by his own wife, which is really terrible. So that's kind of cool if we've been reading it. So so now I can sound a little bit excited about that. On the other hand, it's, it's for some reason, that's a story that just feels smaller. Uh, but then you know what? As I've said before, 
it is the character work that Taylor, Dom Taylor is most uh, mostly known for. But then I know that he's capable of real cool plot lines because I've read Dark Knights of Steel and at times there's real cool plot, Injustice, cool plot. I mean, he, he I know he knows how to tell some interesting stuff, but it does feel small here because it is Teen Titans. I mean, I, I mean, I'm going to say something that's going to sound like I'm making it up, but it's actually a part of the storyline. You already hinted at it. The highlight of this issue, the big thing is that the Titans go and they 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 spend the bulk of the issue reforesting Borneo. <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. And then even even Amanda Waller, who shows up here, of course, she's neither of our favorite characters, certainly not yours, uh, Jace. But Amanda Waller states the obvious here. Amanda Waller doesn't even need to try to get the world to go against the Titans. Amanda Waller mentions that three nations are already fighting over the land in Borneo. And that has nothing to do with Amanda Waller. Amanda Waller literally just has to sit back and the heroes are... Are, are engaging in terrible PR and okay, they might be doing the right thing, but in many ways doing the right thing, Amanda Waller just has to sit back and watch the Titans self-destruct. And it, they do seem to be reckless. They do seem to be, although they might be doing the right thing on the, on the surface, they're, they're not very, they don't do the politics thing very well. And I wish Taylor would spend a little bit more time. I know online he fancies himself. He's quite outspoken and, and outspoken environmentalist and what have you. Uh, but I, I think that, um, well, he's trying to ride that fine line and he did that with, with making Superboy John Kent a little bit more proactive in world affairs in his adventures of Superman run. Uh, I get that. And he's, he's pushing the envelope a little here with the Titans and I don't mind that, but I just wish it was a little bit more kind of exciting than what it is. And, but, but the jury's still out. We know we're leading toward beast wars, which doesn't really sound all that particularly exciting, but I'll give him credit that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to get some huge revelation. What is brother blood up to? Is brother blood going to be related to the beast, these beast, beast wars, DC's big event coming up probably in the summer of 2024. I don't know, but it's meh. So, um, ironically, I, I would have thought I would have, I thought I would have thought I would have been more negative on this than you, but I, I guess we flipped the script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, uh, you know, you guys you never know what you're going to expect. We're here to surprise you. So yeah, this, again, I mean, Rocky's right. There's not it's nothing inherently bad, but yeah, I'm just starting to come around to his point of view of what, God, this thing is just moving at a snail's pace. But yeah, there are some really cool things and the idea of Linda killing him and the, the trophy room being on Mars. Yeah, that's all fun. Um, but yeah, I'm ready. I, I, again, I I think, you know, I recently uh, reread a little bit of the Wolfman Perez run and yeah, they did such a fantastic job back in the day of packing it with action and still giving us that kind of that soap opera feel. So, I mean, there's a reason that run is beloved. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, Sandman Universe uh Nightmare Country, The Glass House, number five. It's a mouthful. Uh, written by James Tynan. Uh, Lissandro Esterin is the artist. Patricia Del Pesh on colors. Simon Bolin on letters. Starting to come together here. Uh, again, a little bit of a transitional issue, kind of reminding us of everything that's been going on and, um, and giving some hints to this big bad that we haven't necessarily learned who it is yet. Is it, is it destiny? Is it some other supernatural being? But uh, between the Corinthian between um, uh, uh, Thessaly, the witch, um, we've got some really fantastic characters here that are uh, trying to navigate exactly what's going on. There's, it gets kind of meta. It hints at uh, uh, Morpheus, uh, you know, Sandman. This is in the Sandman 
universe, obviously. So a lot of characters, I have to imagine anybody who's familiar with um, Neil Gaiman's, you, you know, corner of the DC universe has got to be really digging on this. Um, the thing that really strikes me is just for being these kind of weird out there, supernatural magic based characters, <clears throat> Titan does a fantastic job of, of making them relatable, making them feel a little more down to earth, uh, a little more human. If, you know, if, if you want to put it in those terms, especially the, the Corinthian, obviously who's, you know, a demon who has, you know, teeth for eyes, which freaks my wife out whenever she sees them. Um, but th that's been part of the, the thing that has sort of kept me away from the Sandman corner of the DCU in the past. I've talked about my um, my preference not to read a lot of magic-based stories because it can seem like a little bit of a cheat. Hey, I, I, I'm, as the writer, I kind of wrote myself into this dead end, but I can just use magic and snap my fingers and, and fix it, you know? Um, and it kind of leads to, uh, you know, not th the most satisfying stories for me. But again, Tynan is a fantastic, super talented writer, maybe the best writer working in comics in, in the last few years. Um, and he's doing a fantastic job of giving us really weird ideas and making it spooky. But in terms of the individual characters themselves and the way they relate to each other and, and feelings they might have for each other and, and just the character dynamic, it's it's really, really good, right? It, it's reminding me uh, of what a fantastic job he did uh, with character dynamics in his Nice House on the Lake series, which at the end of the day, that was more a character drama than anything else uh, with an, kind of an ensemble cast. Um, it just so happened he said it in this kind of fantastical setting. Um, but that wasn't the driving force of the story. The driving force of the story, what made it compelling was you wanted to see how those characters were going to react to what happened next, not necessarily what happened next. So, uh, oh yeah. And I'm glad you have that cover up. If you're uh, joining us on YouTube, Rocky's got one of the very covers up, um, uh, that's got, uh, it's a black and white, the Corinthians kind of kneeling there. He has the cat it's on his gorgeous. shoulder. Map, yeah. Map of San Francisco in the background. It's kind of black and white. Um, and yeah, it's just, yeah, I saw that cover. I was like, Oh man, that cover is, uh, is fantastic. Um, I'm, and I'm drawing a blank. Uh, who, who, what's the name of the girl that got reincarnated? In, I want to say it's Madison Flynn. Madison Flynn. Okay. That's yeah, she's the cat. Yeah. I kept thinking it was Tyler. I was like, I know that's not right. Yeah. Flynn. Um, yeah. Like her, her journey has really been the kind of the, the, the thread that the continuity thread that's gone from the first volume of nightmare country through this. And again, just even with somebody having been transformed into a cat, uh, you would think, oh, that's kind of cra crazy or wouldn't work or whatever. Tynan makes it work. Tynan makes it work, and Lysandro Estrin makes it work um, in terms of character dynamic. Even with her as a cat, it still works. So, yeah, yeah. kudos to everybody involved in this. This is, uh, this is a really good title. Uh, what would you think of it? I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I, I love how all these threads are coming together. And I love the fact that the whole idea of Corinthian and, and I want I want to be clear. I, I wasn't really much of a Sandman reader up until I started reading it 
as it was scripted by James Tynion. And, but I'm getting enough out of it that I'm piecing together through the lens and through the script of James Tynion. And I like the idea that uh, the Corinthian is not actually a living creature. He's a story. He's an idea that was made up by dream, made up by Morpheus, the Sandman. And the sand, that's why the Sandman has so much control over the Corinthian. That's why in earlier, in earlier storylines involving the Corinthian, and even on the Sandman season one Netflix TV show, uh, Corinthian sort of uh, tries to rebel against the Sandman and engages in all his serial killing and because the Corinthian is not necessarily is not really a, a, a good person and so Sandman punishes uh, Corinthian uh, by binding the Corinthian in, in this comic to the soul of Madison Flynn who's now in the form of a cat and any t- any time that Corinthian has a urge to want to kill somebody He's, he could only kill with the consent of Madison. So Madison is sort of like his moral center. And what's interesting here is that Corinthian in this issue is captured by Azazel, who is a, the former king of hell. And Azazel has his, for some reason, he, for some un, unknown reason, he wants, he wants, uh, he wants the Sandman dead. And, and it's really unknown as to exactly why, or who he works for. It's hinted later on. It shows desire uh, who, uh, of course, Morpheus, the Sandman, is Dream. And then there's his sister is the, the Desire. And it looks like Dream is maybe making a power play to take over her brother, to take over the Sandman's place. But what I love what Tinian has done is that he ties in all these plot points that have taken place that it appears that by the end of this, the Corinthian is intentionally going to try to kill Mr. Teague, who is the evil head of this corporation that wants to make a film about the end of the world, and that he wants to intentionally try to kill Mr. Teague, which will alert uh, Madison Flynn, who is now in the form of a cat, who is in the company of Thessaly the Witch. And if Madison becomes aware of that, Thessaly says, what's going on? And she says, I I think Corinthians about to kill somebody, but I... I think I can stop him, but I don't know how it'll work. And Thessaly says, do it. But that's how the issue ends. And I think that's Corinthian's way of trying to g- give Madison the, the hint that he's about to kill somebody so that they can attract Thessaly, uh, Thessaly the witch and Madison to where he is so he can possibly escape Azazel, the, the former king of hell. <laughs> I love how all these plot lines are coming into play. And by the way, what I just said, I'm speculating based upon the story. And that's what I love. I love, uh, I love where the writing is competent enough that it causes me to speculate. I might be wrong, but I like that I can kind of anticipate based upon what I've known about the characters in the past, what's going to happen. And I have to sort of deduce these things a little bit. It challenges me as a reader a little bit. And I like that. Uh, I think the art's really good too. Uh, uh, Estheron is the artist. I don't know how to say that name, but uh, yeah, I think it's yeah. Lissandro Esterin. I think. Yeah. But uh, really good. I've, I've, I've really been enjoying this series. I'm really curious as to how this, where this ends. I think there's only one issue left. So I'm really curious to see how, how this ends. And I, I really don't want it to end. I wish this was an ongoing series. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I suppose it all depends on, on Tynan and how much he you know wants to, uh, to do more. Um, but I, yeah, I would, I would not be surprised if this, if this does continue, if we do get more of it, um, you know, another volume or what have you, uh, because yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. It's been really great. Uh, okay. Moving on. We have uh, Hawk Girl number four. This is written by Jadzia Axelrod, drawn by Amon K. Nahelipan, colors by Alex Guermis, lettered by Hassan uh, Atzman Elhau. Uh, I didn't feel like the art was quite as strong in this particular 
issue as we've we've seen, but um, there are some interesting aspects to it, and, and it's not bad. Uh, it just felt a little bit rushed to me. So uh, Volpukalin, who's kind of the, the villain, who's trying to gain access to some kind of nth metal dimension, if you will, uh, we find out that she actually talked to Galaxy uh, way back in the day when Galaxy was a kid, and on top of that, talked to uh, talk to Kendra when Kendra was, was a kid. So I don't know if, if that really makes a lot of sense or, or how, how that could necessarily be. Um, you know, I've talked before in the past, I'm not always the, the biggest, um, fan of when, um, stories do this kind of, um, retconning. Um, to make big changes, it, it sort of feels at times like um, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like how, how you know how could this really be? How could it really happen that way? Um, so yeah, it's a bit it's a bit problematic. And the other thing that I, I felt about why this this series is really starting to fall apart for me and not work is that even with me who doesn't have um, a really ex- what I would consider an extensive or deep understanding of who Kendra is as a character and, and what she's been through. I haven't read, you know, a lot of that early just justice society stuff. Uh, e- even I am sort of feeling like, well, this doesn't make sense with, with what I do know of her. It feels like a completely different character. Uh, and I have to imagine for, for fans of her, this has to feel just really jarring and it does, it doesn't make sense. It, it, uh, it just feels like, everything that's come before is just being thrown out. And, and this is, they're just telling a story about this character, regardless of what's come before, just because this is the story they want to tell. So again, it, it doesn't, that, that portion of it, it doesn't really affect me like an, on, a, on a personal level. Cause I'm not a big fan of Kendra. Cause I, I just don't really know the character well enough, but I, I know enough to know that's again, it's gotta be really frustrating for a long time. Um, fans of the of the character it just doesn't seem to be making sense now there are some cool things you know this dragon that i mentioned um that that has the ability basically to manifest powers that uh prey on the weakness of uh, whoever they're fighting so for instance when the dragon's fighting supergirl it it breathes fire but it breathes kryptonite fire that's really cool um when it's fighting against um Natasha Irons, it has like this electromagnetic pulse, this EMP power, which disables her armor. Again, th- those are cool ideas. Um, so I enjoy that aspect of it. But yeah, I, I have to, I, again, I just sort of feel for longtime fans of Hawkgirl because this just doesn't seem to to really jive with what I know from her. Um, and, and, and even like, like, even if we set that aside, it even feels a little bit like the story of her, like who we've gotten, who she is. Um, even within the story has felt a little bit, um, it hasn't felt consistent. You know, at at times she's a little more woe is me. At other times she's, um, very fierce. At other times she's, she's angry and yelling out out of the blue, yelling at the sky and whatever. Like, like what, what's wrong with this woman? Does she have like schizophrenia or, or what? So yeah, it, it, again, I, I just I feel for fans of Kendra because I gotta I gotta think it's not really working for a lot of people. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's working for you more than it's working for me, Rocky. What did you think of it? Well, I, I'm gonna. You know, I uh, I was I've been pretty hard on her uh, on Axelrod in the last two issues. I'm gonna try to put a positive spin on this. 
But uh, while I'm trying to do that, I think my confusion will sort of shine through here. I what clearly Galaxy is one of the focuses is one of the key central characters in this story. And at one point, when when in order to defeat the dragon, Kendra. Uh, Galaxy uses her energy powers to access all the past lives of Kendra and externalize them, creating a force field around Kendra, protecting her from the dragon. Now, <laughs> what exactly are Galaxy's powers? Now, I shouldn't have to read the Galaxy. Galaxy. I, I know that Galaxy had her own adult uh, DC comic or whatever, fiction or graphic novel uh but i don't know exactly what does galaxy do and and plus i know this is comic book science i get it i read a lot of comic books comic book science can be goofy but how on earth if you have an energy-based powers like galaxy do you externalize do you oh you have past lives kendra i know i can pick up the energies off your past lives and externalize them creating a force field around you Come on, that's ridiculous. And then not only does that happen here, and I'm sorry, but I found it laughable, not, and not in a not in a good way. I thought it was silly, uh, even for a comic book. And then then Kendra gets all upset because Kendra doesn't under Kendra starts crying and she she loses it again, and she doesn't understand why her past lives are protecting her. Well, actually, Galaxy told you your past lives are going to protect you because she was going to do it, so that's why. So you got an explanation, albeit a very bad one. And then Kendra feels like an unnecessary piece. She suffer, she's tired of suffering so that others like Carter and Shiera can rise. Really? Uh, I'm going to point out something that I think is significant here and is a weakness in this series. Uh, Jaxine Axelrod, Axelrod in her interviews had stated sp explicitly that Hawkman, she was not allowed to use, allowed to use Hawkman in this series. And it was, it was like, well, if I can't use Hawkman in this series or Shiera, guess what? I'm going to include them by incorporation, by reference, any chance I get. Hawkman is a key, seems to be a key psychological uh, sore point for Kendra in this entire series. Kendra is angry at Carter, is angry at Shara, and yet he's not a character in the series, which is really a misstep. If you're going to focus, if one of the central angst points of Kendra is Carter Hall, well, then Carter Hall should probably make an appearance in this series. And I think it would have been smarter for the Hawk mythology in general and for Hawk fans to have him in this series. Now, you know, leaving aside whatever issues I might have against Axelrod as a writer in general, I do think that maybe it would have been better, maybe played a little bit better had Carter showed up. Because it just seems odd to me that she's all angst and upset with Carter and he doesn't even make an appearance in the comic book. But again, that's just an observation. But if you can't use Carter Hall, well, then maybe stop referencing him so much in <laughs> in. In, in Kendra, if you want to give Kendra her own agency, having her bitch about Carter all the time, I think maybe isn't the most uh, best way to do it. But again, that's just me. Um, now, having said that, I, I do find it interesting and I am curious. I, I think it's a really interesting plot point that Axelrod has it that uh, Vol, Vol, uh, I'm going to butcher the name again, uh, Volpecula, this villain, when Kendra was small, Kendra made... Uh, was promised her heart's desire. So the question is, what is young Kendra Saunders' heart's desire that she wished for when she was young? Because if Vol uh, Volpecula grants 
young Kendra's heart's desire. What was it that Volpecula granted young Kendra? That's an open question. I don't know what it is because whatever it is, is it maybe something that contributed to Kendra's rather poor state of mind? I'm not really sure. But I am curious to know what that might be and how it has played out because I think it's quite clear here that I'm guessing that uh, Axelrod is trying to rewrite some of Kendra's past history here. And that's, that's, I guess that's fair game. She wants to distinguish Kendra from maybe Shiera and Carter Hall, obviously. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's very obvious. But how angry, don't mention Carter or Shiera to uh, Kendra. You're going to get an earful. But in any event, uh, looking at this on the most positive side, Axelrod is clearly trying to put her stamp on the character in terms of uh, what's going to motivate Kendra moving forward into the dawn of the DCU. So uh, the jury's still out on it. I think that I've got mixed feelings about it. I think the art's extremely inconsistent from page to page. At times, it's fantastic. At other times, I think it leads much, much to be de- desired. But overall, I'm just, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of this version, this iteration of Kendra. She, she seems, she, I think she seems a little bit, frankly, a little bit insane, a little bit almost yeah, like, like I said. She's, uh, got schiz- she's schizophrenic, man. She's yeah. like... Mental problems. Yeah, it's just it's just a little bit off, and maybe it'll all come into play. Maybe there's going to be an explanation for it. She's got maybe it's because she's been possessed by some magic elements from Valpecula. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, anyways, uh, that's me being as kind as I can. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, All right, let's move on. We have uh, Fables number one sixties from writer Bill Willingham, uh, pencils by Mark Buckingham, inks by Steve Lealoha. Lee Luffridge on colors. Uh, I don't read this, so you don't really have anything to say, but uh, I'll hand it off to you, Rocky. What were your thoughts about this issue? Uh, well, uh, this issue in a nutshell, uh, things, it's, this is part 10 of the Black Forest. And for those Fables fans, uh, uh, first, I, I have to say that, unfortunately, we know that uh, Bill Willingham has uh, told DC that he's he's given the rights to the copyright to Fables is now in the public domain, and DC has denied that. Uh, but... In any event, uh, I'm happy. I'm glad that that DC is at least continuing to finish to publish this series, uh, which I'm sure they have no choice. But if they had their choice, they would probably breach the contract. But in any event, uh, uh, in the Black Forest, uh, we have uh, the Big Bee Wolf, uh, along with the Ghost of the Forest, uh, and uh, and the other the the sort of like the green. Uh, archer of the forest sort of fighting for who's going to be control the domain of the forest they're all teaming up to take out peter pan who uh is whose her partner is her peter pan's unwilling partner is tinkerbell and there's massive there's there's a massive battle that's taking place here the ghost of the forest is battling against tinkerbell uh because tinkerbell killed his son at the behest of peter pan last issue Peter, unfortunately, Tinkerbell doesn't realize how powerful the great old forest god is. And uh, Cinderella, meanwhile, who works for the U.S. government, who tries to coordinate and explain the Mondays, the the fairy tale world to the governments of the world. She's basically uh, utilizing her power in the U.S. government to send a battalion into the Black Forest to to help out uh Big B and uh, White, Big B Wolf and and Snow White. Meanwhile, Tinkerbell, f- uh, in fleeing the in battling the ghost, uh, in battling the ghost of the forest, 
uh, flies to Snow White and her children, hoping to threaten them to lure the uh, ghost of the forest into a trap. But she's forced to leave because Bigby Wolf is about to gobble up and kill Peter Pan, and she's got to go. Con- she's got to go help Peter Pan. And uh, meanwhile, <laughs> all this is leading to some is going to lead to a culmination. This is issue ten. There's uh, all these moving parts. There's a lot of f- uh, funny moments, good character work. I I just wanted to give a quick summary. If you're a fan of Fables, I've said it before, you'll enjoy where where this is going. And I'm really curious to see how this is going to end. What's going to be the fate of Tinkerbell, who doesn't like Peter Pan, but she's got no choice. She has to do his bidding. Uh, She hates Peter Pan. Peter Pan is an asshole in this series. (laughs) He's really the bad guy, which is very interesting. And Bigby Wolf, nothing like the big bad wolf battling Peter Pan. Only Bill Willingham could script something so insane. And it's entertaining as hell. I'm enjoying it. And uh, yeah, it's just too bad I wish uh, I wish I wish Willingham and DC would would have gotten along better so we'd get more of these stories but hopefully we'll continue to get them even if it isn't by DC but uh, this is a recommend to all Fables fans alright well moving on we have Superman number 7 which is actually legacy issue number 850 uh, written by Joshua Williamson we have art by a bunch of people Gleb Melnikoff Dan Jurgens, Norm mm-hmm. Ratman Edwin Galman colors by Alejandro Sanchez Galman letters by Ariana Mayer um <coughs> We finally find out what uh, Perry White has been up to. He's been planning his run for mayor of Metropolis. So I think that's a fantastic idea. I think Perry White would be a great choice for mayor uh, of of Metropolis. Meanwhile, we see some fallout of um, what happened last issue when Superman uh, inadvertently released this um, this person named The Chained. We find out the chained is actually the son of uh, I can't remember the first name of of Stryker, uh, yeah. as in Stryker's Island. So clearly he's part of that uh, family. Stryker's Island being sort of the prison island where Metropolis yeah. sends their uh, criminals. Yeah. So Sammy Stryker's his name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. So interesting for uh, for Williamson to sort of tie that in. I, I thought that was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, a really fun story. Again, I think there's a lot here um, that Williamson's giving us in, in terms of making it feel like a classic Superman story. So I really appreciated that. And then you want to talk about family. Um, we have Lois's, or, uh, Lex's uh, mother showing up, and we find out that Lex has a daughter, and her name is Lena, which is obviously the same as the name of uh, his sister. So, yeah, I thought that was all interesting, really fun. Um, I would have preferred had we just had one artist. Every all the artists do a great job. Every one of them does a fantastic job with their particular pages. But it is a, a little bit jarring when you go from one artist to the other. Um, like going from Gleb Melnikoff, who, whose style is is very kinetic and a little bit stylized, to the Jan, Dan Jurgens art, which you know feels very classic because he had such a long run of Superman. I was like, I was like, whoa, wait, wait, what happened? Am I reading the same story? Is, is this a different story? Because I didn't, I knew there were going to be multiple artists on here. But I didn't know if they were each going to be doing their own story or what have you. Turns out it's just one big story. Um, so that that felt a little strange. Um, and, the, and then the other thing about uh, that I forgot to mention about Lena Luther um, is that she has three little like dots or scars on her forehead that are in the same orientation as Brainiac. Her eyes are green in the story. It would almost say Brainiac green. But of course, Luther's eyes are green, so, so are his mother's. But she has like purple – her lips look purple, like purple – lipstick and purple eyeshadow. And then as soon as you turn the page, we get Luther or, or uh, uh, Brainiac rather. 
So we see it is very obvious in case, cause I noticed those dots on her forehead and I was like, wait, why does she have Brainiac dots on her forehead? And then you go to the very next page and there's Brainiac with the three dots on his yeah. forehead. So they, they really want to make sure nobody missed it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what, what does she have to do with Brainiac? We know Brainiac, or it seems like Brainiac is being, being brought back as a big bad uh, for DC uh, going forward. He, he's an interesting character. I mean, mostly known as a, as a Superman villain, um, but b- back during Convergence, they, they sort of sw- sw- switched him, right? They made Brainiac less of a personal villain. And what I mean by that, if you go back and look at the Triangle era, Brainiac was very much out to get Superman. Like there was animosity there. He, he didn't like Superman. He wanted to destroy him. Brainiac now, they've almost made him almost like a Galactus type character, right? Like Brainiac has his mission. He wants to preserve knowledge. He wants to be the smartest in the universe. He's going to go around and he's going to, you know, collect pieces of planets that are doomed to be destroyed. He's going to go um, and and bottle these up and increase his knowledge and just be like this this collector of knowledge and this collector of uh, alien or different um, species of the universe and whatnot. Um, and that's kind of his driving force, more than any sort of animosity against Superman. So, but because he's harming innocents and because he's imprisoning people, he's at odds with Superman, but it's not really the same, right? Like he's sort of outside of morality. He's not really doing it to be a bad guy. So I find that interesting that DC's made that change. I don't know that it's made Brainiac a more interesting character in doing it. He's been a little bit boring at times, I feel in in recent DC history, but again, we know he's doing some crazy stuff. Um, with Lobo DNA, with Zanarian DNA, and we see a little bit of that um, going forward. So, you know, how is that all going to play play in? Um, it, it definitely feels like Brainiac is being set up to be a, a big bad for the next event. Because it even says, uh, when we get to the end of the story, to be continued in Superman number, number 8 and in 2024. So I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the next big event in 2024, the DC crossover event, like we had Night Terrors this year, uh, in 2024 will be something Brainiac centric. So uh, again, I'm enjoying this uh, little nitpicks here or there, but overall Superman has been a very enjoyable title from uh, Joshua Williamson. what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Just to add to that, we know that uh, we know that uh, Jason Aaron, we know from the New York comic-con uh, we know that Jason Aaron is going to actually uh, do be, be doing a, an I bizarro series uh, in action comics three issues of action comics. And then he's going to be coming back and helping Williamson with a Brainiac story in 2024. So we know that that's likely, we know that this Brainiac story is likely to be uh, more of an epic story going into 2024. Uh, I like the way this Brainiac finally feels like maybe he's a little bit more threatening. Even in this issue, I love the fact that they incorporate one of my favorite characters of the Legion of Superheroes, Cosmic Boy. He's from the planet called Brawl or Brawl. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. B-R-A-A-L. And everyone has cosmic powers on the planet. But there's one person on that planet that has superpowers and Brainiac wants that person and he sends his Zarnians from the... He's, he bottled, he shrunk. We Everyone thought that Zarnia was destroyed, that, Lobo's, that Lobo had destroyed his whole planet. But apparently there was one city on Zarnia that that uh, Brainiac bottled up and he's uh, basically blackmailed three Zarnians to go down to Brawl and destroy the planet. And so obviously some cr- crazy Zarnians, well, we know how powerful Lobo is. Well, now take three 
people as powerful as Lobo and uh, and the the level of destruction that they're capable of. This is a brainiac with with an entire bottled city of Zarnians that he can he can increase their size to normal size. That's a he's got a real potential. I mean, imagine an entire planet of Lobos. Good God, I thought Lobo was crazy enough. Imagine, maybe he's the only, maybe, is he the most insane of all the Zarnians or is maybe he's the, the sane one? Who knows? But I think it's pretty cool. It's just from a fanboy perspective, I, I love what, what's going on here. Uh, I, I never, Lena, Lu, or Lena Luther, wow. Uh, I seem to recall Lena Luther being the daughter. I used to think Lena Luther was the name of, of Lex Luther's lover or wife in the past, not, uh, not his daughter. But so th- I think this is a new spin, but may- maybe I'm wrong on that. But in any event, I think this is very interesting. I love this shirt that Lena Luther is wearing. It says the Black Canaries, which of course is the band that uh, we know at least in one iteration, Dinah Lance, the Black Canary, you know, used to sing in a band. And uh, was that, is that what that is a reference to? I like that. I like that. I like that, uh, that there's a reference to that. And and that uh, the 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 writer here, you know, Williamson, is actually incorporating, you know, DC lore in the shirts that some of the characters wear. Like, for example, you know, unlike in you know in Hawkgirl, where Jack, you know Axelrod has Kendra Saunders wearing a shirt that says, "I no, I, I nobody likes me, and I don't care," or something to that effect. Um, you know. Be more incorporate. I, I like when you incorporate the fun aspects of the DC universe as opposed to all that negativity. But that's a digression. I'm really curious. Uh, there's a comment made by Lex's mother here that I thought was so revealing. Letitia Luther. Uh, she says that Luther, when he was young, could learn any music, but he struggled to write his own. I thought that was very telling. What a brilliant yes. thing for Williamson to say that, you know, I mean, that he, he is so brilliant. He could instantly pick up any instrument and yet Luther could not write his own song. And that says some, that's such a great metaphor for Luther. He's so brilliant and yet he can't seem to write he can't be his, the, the hero in his own story, even though he wants to be. He doesn't know really what he wants to be. I thought that was such a beautiful way of his uh, of observation from his mother to make that says a lot about Luther in just a, an easy metaphor. I thought that was very well done. Uh, and, of course, you, you mentioned The Chained. Uh, the Chained is such an interesting character. Uh, uh, the Chained ends up uh, being confronted by the Graft and uh, Dr. Farmer, uh, Dr. Pharma, and they recruit him in their machinations and their further attempts to kill uh, Lex Luthor. And um, yeah, uh, we know that the chain has tactile telekinesis similar to the power set that Connor Kent has, but his are much more powerful. And uh, yeah, he's, you know, so many moving parts here. A lot of substance in the issue, a lot of action. I think that Williams has has done a really an exceptional job here, continues to do a, a great job, continues to impress me. And I thought this was uh, one of my favorites of the week overall. It was very well done. Uh, and yeah, then- I agree. It was uh, yeah, it was really really good. Uh, another highlight this week: Green Lantern War Journal number two, off the rails from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Montos, colors by Alex Guermas, uh, letters by Dave Sharp. You were so excited about this, you started to talk about it when we were talking. Uh, yeah, about, uh, I, I confused the, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, give us your thoughts on uh, on uh, War Journal too. Well, I, I apologize because when I think of when I think of cool black characters, I know we I have Mister Terrific. I've got uh, I've got John Stewart, and I've got uh, uh, Cyborg. And I if, um, did I say Mister Terrific already? Uh, in any event, I sort of confused them all. But uh, 
you know, kudos to uh, kudos to uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson. He continues to uh, just, you know, impress me with this. Uh, Montos on the art's fantastic. I think Montos's art is. He does an absolutely amazing job of conveying. It, it, it feels like I'm looking at a Marine, like John Stewart looks so cool. And, you know, I love the fact that this is, uh, it starts off with the, these three Green Lantern Corps thinking that they've, uh, they've incapacitated John Stewart, but it's actually, they're above the crash ship of the Revenant Queen. And this Prince Varon, who is sort of like, almost like a, he's a, he's from the, he's a, he's a Durlan. And uh, Durlan is from the planet Durla. And if you think of Durlan, think of Chameleon Boy, the Legion of Superheroes in the future. This is a Durlan in the 20, 21st century who is a temporary, who's a Green Lantern, but he's also, he's going to, he's a prince of his own planet, but he's a Green Lantern. And he wants to make a name for himself by taking out Jon Stewart. But unfortunately for him uh, and his two uh, Green Lantern uh, compatriots, they come across the Revenant Queen and the Revenant Queen easily dispatches Varon and his two Green Lanterns and basically subsumes them and they, they become the minions of the Revenant Queen uh, whereby they look for Jon Stewart uh, and attack Jon Stewart after Jon Stewart takes his mother to visit uh, steal John Henry Irons uh, in Metropolis and learn about all the different sort of uh, uh, well, he's basically offered a job. John Henry uh, Irons Steele offers John Stewart a job because of his background in architecture. Uh, it ends up that John Stewart is quite intelligent and has a lot of very interesting ideas for the, a, mon a new monorail system based on on Genesis technology that John Henry Irons acquired from the War World saga of PKG that PKJ wrote. So I like the connectivity between how PKJ is incorporating his past. Uh, storylines with with Superman into into this into Green Lantern War Journal and into these characters uh, into these characters it, it really works I think it does a really good job I I love the continuing a uh, very strong bond bond and relationship that John has with his mother clearly she loves him she supports him and uh, I love how protective he is of. Uh, of her and and how brave John Stewart is. I thought that the choreographed. I, I thought that the fight scene as this as this subway system as this train is flying down the its track. All of a sudden, it's 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 basically essentially almost completely destroyed by the the three Revenant Queen possessed Green Lanterns, which look really cool. I mean, visually here, Montos here is just killing it on the art. I mean, this is. I haven't been this. I haven't been this afraid of Green Lanterns. Since the Black Lantern, <laughs> since the Black Black Lantern saga, this is I, I really love the art here. Montos is really hanging out of the park. I this is a visual feast, and even the way how John John Stewart looks intimidating. And what's cool is he's intimidating because he's John freaking Stewart, and uh, he's got the green. He's a living power battery in and of himself, and he's not intimidated by the Revenant Queen's power as channeled through these. Uh, through Prince Veron and these two other Green Lanterns. And very well done. He kicks ass, uh, but ultimately ends up getting stabbed by one of the uh, Revenant uh, Green Lanterns and ultimately might end up being possessed by them. Uh, but And the next issue teases to be the corruption of Jon Stewart. But I thought this was very well done. It was action-packed. I was captivated along the way. It actually made made it even more interesting. I, I love how it overlaps with with uh, John Henry Irons and Steel and, and the backup in Action Comics and how PKJ is sort of linking those two because it makes both storylines 
more interesting and it and it makes both those characters of John Henry Irons and John Stewart quite frankly more interesting and I kind of like that they're buddy buddy or they, they they should be friends because they actually do have a lot in common and I kind of like that that pairing and I, I hope we see more of it as the stories continue what about yourself yeah I enjoyed it as well I think uh, one of the things and I, I I talked about this previously when we reviewed issue one I talked about it with Philip Kenny Johnson when he was on like you start leaning into John Stewart as an architect and leave a little bit of the Marine and military military stuff to the wayside, you're, you're going to have, you're going to have me. Like I, I enjoy that aspect of him so much more than, you know, a lot of the other character aspects of him that we've, that we've had in the past. So uh, yeah, I really enjoy that aspect of, uh, of John Stewart. And, um, and so I'm, I'm enjoying that as well. I agree with you on the Revenant queen and these versions of lanterns, which yeah, little more menace feels a little more uh, dangerous than, than what we've had in the past. So, you know, that works as well um, on a lot of levels. So yeah, there's not really anything I can point to in the story where I, I would say, well, th- you know, this is not working for me or that's not working for me or what have you. Like I think for um, yeah, for the most part, this, this is really working on a lot of different levels for me. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of what, is being done here by, uh, by PKJ. So, um, is it perfect? No. Um, it, it does feel like, I don't want to say there's something missing, but when you start talking about Philip Kennedy Johnson writing, like he, he, there's, he does so much, uh, he does so much work, right? He does so much, um, on so many different levels in terms of adding, things that, that we don't necessarily get to see on the page in, in terms of he's got these character Bibles and, and what have you. And sometimes it, we can feel like we're missing out on things uh, a little bit to some extent, which is, you know, disappointing. And I think that's, that's kind of the case here, right? Like he, he probably has so much background and everything built for, um, for the story in terms of uh, the, the Revenant Queen and, and what, you know, she is, how she relates to lanterns or whatever. There may be some of that stuff that we simply just don't get to see. There just isn't enough real estate for it. But, but I can tell just based on what we've had from the story so far that it's, that it's there, right? That that part of the story is there. Um, but yeah, we just, we're, like I said, we're probably not going to get a chance to see it. So I'd be lying if I, uh, didn't say I was, wasn't a little disappointed because you know, you know, he's got all that built out or what, or what have you. Um, and so in his mind, he, you know, it's a richer story for it. And, you know, we don't always get to see that stuff, but that's just, that's a limitation of the medium. Um, and hopefully we'll have Philip Kennedy Johnson on at some point, maybe toward the end of the series. And he can flesh out some of those things for us when we know a little bit more about the, the Revenant queen. Uh, Cause don't you th- think that's probably the case Rocky? Don't you think he has like all this, you know, world and, and lore and whatnot built up around this Revenant Queen. And like, we don't, we didn't even, we saw how she got her powers, but we didn't really understand how, you know, how she yeah. got them. What was it, it, it definitely feels that that's the case. And I, I, I really like the fact that you, that the Revenant Queen feels like she's a threat and there, she has a huge rich history from another universe that we readers are, we, we're blind to. We don't know. We only got hints of it. And, but she wiped out 
almost half an entire Green Lantern core in another universe. So we know she's a threat, but this John Stewart has no idea who she is. And, and even in the face of not knowing that he's just, of course, his ignorance is bliss. He's still a kick-ass. He doesn't realize how dangerous it is. And, and so how it's going to play out in this universe, it's almost like a de facto Elseworlds, but, but, but now the real DC universe, our DC earth designate zero is the Elseworlds story of the Revenant Queen getting a second kick at the cat, having failed in the other universe, she's now bringing the fight to a different Jon Stewart in in the mainstream DCU. So it's kind of cool that way. So we'll have to wait and see how it turns out. Yeah, you, you mentioned the other universe. He also reminded me Lantern Shepherd, right? Who we saw in kind of the, the prequel backups. Like I, right. I hope we get to see him in our universe. I'd love to see him and John team up where he gets a chance because, you know, in, in that universe where John is the, the builder and the warrior and, you know, super powerful and what have you, um, when all of a sudden you put him in our universe and it's it's a little bit of a different perspective, right? Like he, he could come over to our universe and team up and see John as a person and not necessarily as this, you know, warrior god thing to, you know, aspire to and, and what have you. So um, that could be that could be really interesting as, as well. So. Uh, yeah, again, I just, I just love it. And, and, you know, not to take anything away from what Jeffrey Thorne did in trying to elevate Jon Stewart, but in my mind, this is how you elevate Jon Stewart. Like this is so much, uh, so much more interesting to elevate him in this way where I don't feel like it's, um, it's kind of over the top and, and non-believable making him like this God, you know, mm-hmm. he still is a living power battery, PKJ is not necessarily rolling back everything that uh, Jeffrey Thorne did, just tempering a little bit to, to just make it, a you know, not necessarily believable. It is a comic, but just a little more relatable. And so we're able to understand a, a little bit more of, uh, of what's going on. So yeah, yeah. digging it. It's fantastic. Big fan of uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson, obviously uh, we both are. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Jay Garrick, The Flash, number one, uh, from friend of the show, Jeremy Adams, uh, handling the writing. Diego Orlatuga is the artist. Luis Guerrero on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one. Well, this this opening issue, uh, and everybody, we should be happy. We got Jeremy Adams on The Flash. It may not be The Flash we were maybe we're all hoping it'd stay on, but it is a speedster. Jeremy Adams on Jay Garrick, The Flash. And this really picks up right right at the end of uh, of uh, Stargirl the lost the lost children Judy Garrick is back with her family uh Jay and Judy Garrick uh they they lost their daughter in the 1940s and this is really the story explaining what happened back in the 1940s and uh where they where they had a daughter and and it was it's essentially this issue reveals an old uh, an old adventure where Jay and his daughter, Judy Garrick, known as the Boom, uh, they go and they, they battle against the, the supervillain known as Dr. Elemental. And in stopping Dr. Elemental, uh, Judy Garrick, or the Boom, stops the uh, Dr. Elemental. But somehow something happens that as, as uh, the Boom stops as Judy Garrick stops and defeats Dr. Elemental, she disappears from the timeline. And at that exact moment, as Jay Garrick is rescuing his wife, Judy, Judy asks how their daughter is, but then suddenly, and then Jay says, well, what daughter? We don't have one. You know, we can't have kids. And, and all of a sudden it was like, it's, it's very tragic. It's so, so tragic. Cause all of a sudden they, the memory of the daughter is, is completely taken from their minds. And, 
And, and that moment where, you know, that, that memory of their daughter is taken from their minds that the next page, it shows uh, Judy Garrick an older Judy now in her seventies or eighties crying as she suddenly remembers a young Judy, exactly how she remembered it when she disappeared appear right before her in present day. I thought that was very well done and kudos to uh, Diego Olatega, uh, the, the artist and Louis Guerrera on the colors. I thought this, I thought it was very well done. And uh, this, this had a little bit, uh, I, I felt some degree of, I, I felt some of the emotional resonance uh, on, on that aspect of it. Uh, the boom, I still, you know, Jeremy Adams is usually pretty good at his character work and he's good. He was good at developing the, uh, the family of, of Wally West and Linda and Jay and, and Irie uh, West. And I think that he's slowly going to be doing that here. Judy Garrick has to get used to life. I mean, I can't imagine going from the 1940s to the, you know, the year 2023, how that, the adjustment that somebody like Judy Garrick, uh, pardon me, somebody like, yes, uh, the boom would have to make. And she, you know, uh, th- th- those adjustments that she's going to have to make are, uh, I guess we'll see more of it as the issues, uh, as the, as the story continues. This issue in and of itself, not a lot happens. As soon as Judy gets back, the boom gets back in the present day, she's right away going, trying to be a superhero again and stopping a bank robbery. And, and there doesn't really seem to be, she doesn't really have to adjust to a lot, uh, you know, because, you know, stopping a bank robbery in the 21st century is probably very similar to stopping a bank robbery in the 1940s on the surface. But there's a lot more changes in society that she's got to become accustomed to uh, that she hasn't really gotten into yet. Jay Garrick shows up and ultimately so does Dr. Elemental again. And because now that Judy's got her memories back and now the world knows that, that Judy Garrick is, is alive... How, you know, what's the truth about Dr. Elemental? Who is Dr. Elemental? Judy Garrick recognized him before she disappeared into the timeline. She recognized him. Is she going to tell her parents who she is? Does Judy still remember who uh, the Dr. Elemental is now that she's in the present day? Where uh, these are the, these are open questions. Uh, is Dr. Elemental an existing character? Is he a new character? Uh, we don't know. That's sort of the central mystery that ends the first issue. And, uh, you know, again, I thought that uh, it was interesting because I really didn't have any idea what you, what uh, what Jeremy Adams was going to do with this character. It's a brand new character. How do you handle it? And I, I thought he did a reasonably good job because we do need to know the circumstances that Judy Garrick disappeared and we were given that and now he can build on from there. And at some point, this Dr. Elemental must be quite the villain. And what did he gain from it? What has Dr. Elemental been doing over the last 50, 60, 70 years? Uh, how powerful is he? Who is he? A lot of very interesting questions and I'm curious to see where it's headed. What do what you think? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think one of the things that's problematic um, is how the Golden Age characters are so cemented in World War II. And obviously, uh, they're heroes, and so they're fudging them with their ages a little bit. Like anybody who was alive in World War II to the point where they could be married and have a kid is going to be well into their hundreds, not 70, like supposedly Jay and (laughs) <laughs> and Judy are here. So, so yeah, they're fudging with the age a little bit and it's, it's sort of problematic. And as more time goes by, it's going to make it a little tougher. So yeah, you sort of feel that angst and that pain, you know, certainly if you're a parent, um, 
maybe even more so that, you know, if your kid disappeared and then came back, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, and you were the same age or they were the same age and you had aged, you know, you think about all the time lost and what have you. So yeah, that portion of it really works. But I think the strength of the story is in the mystery that Adams has created and he does it right from the beginning in a subtle way and then calls back to it later where you realize uh, a little more what's going on. You mentioned it with the Dr. Elemental and with, you know, that moment where um, Jay is first approaching her and mentions the boom. And then as he gets closer to her, it's almost like he enters the like field of influence where his memory is erased. And then she says something about uh, Judy says something about their daughter and he goes, Oh, we don't have a daughter. We can't have kids. And you're like, well, you just the word balloon before said the boom. And so what does Dr. Elemental have to do with it? Who is he? Why does he care? How does it tie in with the child minder? So we know Jeremy Adams has uh, worked with Jeff Johns previously uh, on the, um, the beyond flashpoint stuff. And obviously Johns wrote the lost children, star girl story, uh, and so, yeah, Jeremy's in the know when it comes to adding to whatever Jeff Johns is doing in the DCU and how much that might continue. I guess we'll see. You know, we'll talk tomorrow on the New York Comic Con episode about his announcement um, with some others at Image. Um, so how much work is he going to continue to do for DC? Uh, remains to be seen. How much is he doing f- with his film stuff? And still, don't you know, I'm not going to point the finger at anybody, but Jeff Johns books do tend to be late whether it's him or the artists can't really say, but um, they don't seem to be able to stand a schedule. Uh, we've seen that with his last three times we saw it with doomsday clock. We saw it with Shazam. Now we're seeing it with justice uh, society, unfortunately. So, uh, but that's neither here nor there. This is fantastic. The Diego uh, or Latuga art is gorgeous. Reminds me a little bit of Todd Knox art, um, yeah. but yeah, just gorgeous. And it has that classic superhero feel very primary and bright colors uh, from Luis Guerrero, which adds to that classic timeless feel. So yeah, big fan of it. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Catwoman 58 Gotham war part five. I, you know, I don't think we're going to have much argument on this one. Like we've had on a lot of Gotham war um, issues, but uh, written by Tinny Howard, Nico Leone on art, Veronica Gandini on colors, Lucas Gattoni on letters. Uh, I shudder to ask what you thought of this. Uh, well, I, <laughs> uh, I'm just, um, you know, the central, here's my frustration is on the one hand, well, I take, I'll take the, the debates, the, the, the ranting back and forth, the arguments, the, the fun stuff you and I argue about. That's part of the enjoyment of reading comics that readers can read the same thing and disagree and debate. That's part of the enjoyment and the fun of it. And what the frustrating aspect of it is that the, some of the stuff that you and I have sort of been uh, ranting about and disagreeing about, it's not really going to be addressed. <laughs> That's the sad part is that I kind of want a little bit more of answers. And, and this, what I find out in this, you know, this issue has Selena finally finding Batman and she finds Batman and he's, he's completely incapacitated because he's struggling with a Batman of Zerna and, Rather than take him off the playing field or incapacitate him or knock him out, or you would think she would want to, you know, you know, stop him from, you think she'd have some fear that he's, you know, she knows he's going through something. So why not, you know, he's kind of a dangerous, you don't know what he's done with Jason Todd. Following the logic that's been established so far, I would have thought Selena would have been a little bit more aggressive in maybe, you know, incapacitating him or at least maybe handcuffing or something. 
but but no, they just have this conversation like two lovers in the night, and 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 they and they get along. Suddenly, Batman is no longer possessed by Batman of Zorana. He's he, he just recovers. He puts on his cape, and he says that we can't be enemies. I couldn't handle that. And they don't actually really talk about the issues. And then Batman tells her at one point, well, you know, you really could stop. You know, Catwoman says, I'm worried about you. Batman says, well, Catwoman says, I'm worried. And he says, well, what's there to worry about? Just tell your minions or your thieves not to not to commit crimes. And she goes, I mean, I'm worried about you. And okay, then another way to sidestep the issues that you and I and other readers have been arguing about. So, you know, and then Selena's worried about Jason Todd as if, since when has Selena ever cared about Jason Todd? And and then and then what's odd here is that we thought Batman of Zarana was the crazy one that did what he did to Jason Todd. But no, it would appear that Bruce Wayne, the sane part, it wasn't Batman of Zarana that's telling Selena that, oh no, I just did uh, what I did to Jason Todd, I did for his own good. I did for his own good. Um uh, you know, I'm just taking him. Um, I finally, I finally cured Jason of the sickness that he ex- that I've exploited in him for far too long, which is interesting because it, it suggests that Batman feels that uh, he's let he's tacitly let Jason Todd aggressively get away with using lethal force uh, because it it suits him from time to time, and he can blame Jason Todd for using force that maybe Batman hasn't had doesn't have to accountable for and so Batman maybe out of guilt is stopping Jason Todd so there's some interesting little tidbits there that Teeny Howard has explored that okay that's interesting legal uh, psychological analysis of maybe Batman's breakdown or analysis uh, or justification of why he did that to Jason Todd uh, at the end with Vandal Savage and Scandal Savage I said before I love Vandal and Scandal Savage but I will admit that this is sort of a Vandal Savage really is, I mean, I know he's a caveman. He literally is a troglodyte that gained immortality. And you can kind of tell because he he's never particularly bright. I mean, his plan here, he, Vandal Savage through Catwoman wants to take over Catwoman's uh, operation and then destroy it anyway. That's what Vandal does. I mean, Vandal literally, he, he takes over Catwoman's operations that she spent all this time training all these thieves. She He was willing to offer Catwoman immortality and basically work for him, which of course she's going to refuse. But the fact that it sounded at first that Vandal wanted Catwoman on his side to all that work she did was going to, he was going to continue it. But no, he wants to destroy and kill off all the thieves. He wants to bring in all the A-list villains at the end. He wants to, you know, he wants to bring in all the, all the villains. He wants to bring in, uh, um, uh, Oh, God. Uh, Firefly, Professor Pig, Ventriloquist, Calendar Man, Two-Face, Black Mask. And he wants to basically offer them uh, immortality. He wants to he wants to let them think that they're his generals until the end. And he's probably going to betray them. So Vandal Savage really just seems to be an agent of chaos here. And I'm not really sure what his endgame is. But what it does is that it eliminates the central conceit of this entire storyline. I know already that we're, it's never going to be answered you know, how are the Batman, Catwoman, their resolution is they're never really going to have a conversation about their two different ways of fighting crime. We're, we're, because Vandal Savage is, is, has basically taken that away. Now it's chaos. And now this storyline is just going to wrap up with Batman and Catwoman joining forces to take down Vandal, Vandal Savage and his daughter Scandal. And possibly Scandal might end up betraying Vandal because I think Scandal likes Catwoman's plan, but she doesn't realize that her father has maybe more chaos in mind. Um, so uh, on the one hand there's a lot of moving parts here and I'm focusing on the stuff that sort of 
makes more sense in my head canon to make this story go smooth. But frankly, I'm breezing over the stuff that's that that's really bothered me. We're we're not going to get answers, satisfying answers to the actual central, uh, art, the central debate on that this storyline sort of asks, uh, because Vandal Savage has just sort of wiped every is wiping everything off the board, and I'm a little disappointed in that. I was hoping for a little bit more. Uh, I I it I thought it. I, th- I thought it could has the potential to be more interesting. Like I, I like the questions that it posed, but it's it's going out of its way to avoid giving us any meaningful answers, and because none of the characters are talking about it, and it's frustrating. So, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I knew we weren't going to disagree because here's the thing: all the things we've been disagreeing about that have made this thing interesting, they're all just kind of like it was almost like I missed an issue. Okay, so now we're reminded how much Bruce and Selena really love each other. And man, I just don't go in for that relationship. But I, I tried to set that aside and I really, th- you know, think about this. Okay, if these people really do you'd love each other as much as they say they do and what have you, then, you know, how, how does that really work? What, you know, what happens in terms of would they set aside their differences and, and what have you? Yeah, I guess it could work like that. But, but it's like, where's the trauma? Where's like, it's just so disjointed and the pacing feels off. And I, I, I was just like, what the heck is going on? Like even to the point you look at the very first page and Catwoman finds Batman on a roof and he's got his mask off and he's, he's like depressed and he's, he's having issues. And she's like, Oh, you know, are you okay? And then all of a sudden he you know, stands up and puts the mask on and now I'm macho and now I'm Batman and I'm not going to deal with my trauma or whatever. Like there was a reason he was acting crazy. And now we're just going to gloss over that and forget about it because well, now there's a bigger threat, right? Now now Vandal Savage is the threat. Now Scandal Savage is the threat. And we're going to forget about everything interesting that came before that en- engendered those uh, heated conversations and what have you. It's like, that's fine if that was the direction this always sh- should have taken. But I, I think they should have been a little more careful then in how far they had Bruce go. Because, yeah, you mentioned it yourself. We get a little bit of explanation to his thought process of, why he did what he did to Jason Todd. And it makes sense in terms of, you know, I've let it go too far, you know, I'm caring for him. And, you know, at times it sort of suited my purpose or whatever. It was fair to him or what have you. So that all makes sense, but it still doesn't make sense that Bruce would be the hero and the the, kind of the righteous um, sort of uh, values that he's had to drug to and permanently cripple his protege, right? His his one of his sons. That that still doesn't make sense to me, uh, without the craziness and the trauma. And if that craziness and trauma is there, then why did it all of a sudden go away? And now he's willing to work with Catwoman or whatever. Like it just, it just, it doesn't feel. It feels like we're missing something. It feels like we missed a step where. Yeah, agree. Like if, if they had, if Catwoman had approached Batman the way she did on the first page of this book, you know, and he was like, you know, I'm struggling not to lash out at you. What you're doing is wrong. You know, he, and he does say it here, you know, you need to tell your people to stop robbing people. That was one thing we always agreed on that Catwoman wasn't right, but Batman wasn't right either. A Catwoman solution, the, the positive of what she was doing was it lowered violent crime. The negative of what she was doing was it was still crime, and there's no such thing as a victimless crime, even if it's the rest of everybody else whose insurance goes up, you know, insurance premiums and what have you. That's still they're still paying the price, 
you can't just go steal from people and have there not be consequences. Even if they're rich people, there's always going to be consequences. Guess what? If insurance premiums go up, the rich people are more able to, to handle that than the middle class. So yeah, what Selena was doing wasn't right. Batman's response to it wasn't right either. But if she had approached him and they had had some sort of like long drawn out, it could have been like, I'm just, again, playing script doctor, editor, what have you. It could have even been this interesting issue where they were sparring while they were having an intellectual conversation to keep it interesting, right? And come to some sort of agreement that, okay, we have to figure out out a way to solve this, but let's stop with like the physically hurting of, you know, each other's people. Let's stop with the assaults and the breaking bones of these wannabe cat burglars. Let's stop with the drugging of Batman sidekicks and, and permanently scarring them uh, because guess what? There's a bigger threat. Vandal Savage, Scandal Savage. That's, that's what's important to focus on. Th- to me, th- it would have made sense. We're missing that piece. Instead, it's just she shows up on the rooftop. He's like there, a big mess, crying. And then she says something. He stands up. Okay, it's over. I'm, I'm fine now. Let's, yeah, let's work together. Vandal Savage. It turns out one of my uh, you know right-hand people that I trusted is Scandal Savage, Vandal Savage's daughter. We need to work together. We need to make sure Gotham's in a good place. And so you're right, Rocky. All the stuff that engendered those conversations, those intense conversations we had, you're right. We're never going to get answers. It's all just going to get thrown away. And it ends up feeling like a lot of these stories do. What the hell was the point? What the hell was the point? You had an interesting story. You know, it is possible. And I've said this many times in regards to story. It's possible for two people to disagree and they both be wrong. But there is a kernel of something positive there in that crime went down. So, you know, what can you do? How do you sustain that? How do you keep that going and stop with the burglaries and that sort of stuff? But no, and, and you know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm being a little harsh. It's not like these are easy questions to answer. It's not like if Chip Zdarsky or Tinny Howard had the answers to these questions, they'd be writing comics. They probably – Honestly, if they could solve this problem, they should be like heads of government, right? Because these are societal problems. These are like problems that exist within the human condition. So I'm not saying there is an easy answer, but, you know, it is important to tell these stories to start the conversation. And at least they did that. But yeah, like so many recent DC events, this one's just going to end up feeling like a disappointment. And and maybe I'm being too negative. Maybe I'm being too harsh. And I shouldn't say it's going to end up being uh, what was the point when we haven't even gotten the end yet. But Man, it, it, this felt like a jarring change, and it feels like it's moving really fast again because this issue suffered from what we've seen some of her uh, – Tinny Howard's issues of Catwoman suffer from the past. There's so much story packed in here and so many things happen that it jumps from event to event to event, and it ends up feeling choppy. Uh, the Nico Leone art is absolutely fantastic. Again, maybe they'll stick the landing and we'll be able to say, okay – Let's look at the forest rather than the trees and say, overall, this this was an enjoyable story. Um, but it, yeah, it's been – the Scotham War has been a little bit problematic. I, it's almost like they, they tr- tried to tackle too interesting of an idea or too complex of a problem instead of kind of keeping it simple. But I don't know. We're, we're, we're critics. We're, we're you know, pundits and you know, maybe we're not happy no matter, what, no matter what. If you make it too simple, we're like, oh, boring make it too complicated can't actually answer the questions you're asking because nobody can. Cause they're, you know, complicated yeah. questions about the human condition. And we're like, ah, it didn't work. You know, it's too complicated. Blah, blah. So I don't know. Damned if you do damned, if you don't, 
I, I have only myself to blame for being yeah. so critical. I, I, I do I do have one more comment I gotta make. At yeah, one point Vandal Savage, Vandal Savage is talking to all the A-list A-list villains, and he says to Professor Pig, my thanks for rounding up your most trusted generals. Uh, each one of you, he says, is worth more, is worth one hundred of these men for hire which is a complete contradiction to what the central premise of the storyline was that the individual men that and women that Selena were training so that they could take care of themselves would have their own agency and their own abilities to think for themselves and 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 that crime would ultimately become safer that flies in the face of what now Vandal Savage he seems to be intentionally trying to sabotage what Selena spent all that time building and yet he's told his daughter Scandal and Scandal thinks that, you know, actually, I, I don't think Scandal appreciates what Vandal is doing. I think Vandal is intentionally sabotaging what Selena has has built up. And it's so unfortunate because as as we've just, you know, as we both just said, it just, it just seems to sabotage all of Catwoman's efforts, whether you, whether you agree with him or not. And it, it, it robs us of that debate and, it, and an interesting, just an interesting story in and of itself uh, is, is basically robbed from the reader. So it is frustrating. Yeah, he does kind of hint at that. That is hinted at that he's, he's really playing them and he doesn't really believe what he's telling them. Because as he walks away, he goes, let them be my infantry while they think of themselves as generals. Yes. So I really think he just wants them as a distraction. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really have any intention and, of, and and we should we should mention that in the pages of Detective Comics, one of the Orgum family's prophecies was that uh, this man would come to take and it was a, to take the 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 stone, and I think that was a reference to Vandal Savage. It wasn't just Raza Gall. We got to remember that Vandal Savage joined this story through Detective Comics. He came to Gotham because of the Orgum family. He was because he's prophesized to look for this for. Because uh, originally the idea of immortality wasn't just the uh, the Lazarus pit through Raza Gaul and through that that lost city of Ermin Ur- or whatever it was, but Raza Gaul plays a role in Detective Comics, and that's what brought him to Gotham. And now he finds himself in this storyline. And I find myself wishing that he'd stay in Detective Comics because I I respected him more, and he seemed more important when he appeared in Detective Comics. He seems more like sort of like just a. a a wild card here in the pages here in the pages of, of Batman and Catwoman where he's just, he's ruining what could otherwise be a good debate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fair enough. It's all his fault. Yeah. Uh, all right. So up next we have the uh, Harley Quinn black, white, redder number four. I know you, you didn't uh, read the last uh, issue re- of the anthology. Yeah. Did I you read get a chance one. to read this one? Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, let me go over the credits real fast, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about what our thoughts are on um, on each of the particular issues. So Zoe Thorogood does uh, the first story, um, story art and letters. Uh, she really is an up and comer, super talented. So it's interesting to see her take on Harley Quinn. The second one is written by Kyle Starks. We have art and letters by Chris Schweizer, and then the last story is let me get there, written by. Uh, Sean Lewis, art by Hayden Sherman, letters by Hassan Otsman Elhow. Uh, I'll just go first and say, like I say with all these, this as much as I enjoy um, Zoe Thorogood, and I am a fan of her work, even her brilliance couldn't really make me care about these stories. Like limited color palette, just simply not that interesting to me. Um, yeah, I sort of felt like, Okay, 
these are Harley Quinn stories. I'm not really that interested. It, it's just, none of them stood out for me. None of them did much for me. Um, it was, I wasn't excited to read it. I, I saved it for last. <laughs> uh, not be, you know, not save the best for last, but just cause I was, wasn't looking forward to reading it. And yeah, I don't know. Like you said earlier, sometimes it's a state of mind. Maybe I just wasn't in the mood for it, but the last couple issues of this have been a real chore for me, um, to read. So they're not bad comics. I want to s- stress that they're not bad comics, technically very well done. And maybe these stories for Harley Quinn fans are scratching an itch of see different versions of Harley and what have you. But I'm not a Harley fan. I'm not the target audience for this. Uh, and sometimes, even if I'm not the target audience, I can still enjoy it. But yeah, th- these just aren't for me. And they're just not really doing much for me. So I don't know. Maybe you had a different experience. I know you're a bigger Harley fan than I am. What did you think? Well, uh, when I say I'm a Harley fan, I'm, I'm a fan of Harley with a very particular iteration that I haven't seen yeah. in comics for yeah. quite a while, quite frankly. But yeah. but I agree. This, is, this isn't like a Superman, uh, like with the Superman anthology, when it's Superman red, 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 blue and white or whatever, or, or one or wonder woman, black and gold. Uh, we know who wonder woman is. We know, we know who wonder woman is. We know who Superman is, but Harley Quinn is literally whatever that is, is completely different things, radically different things to very, to different people. And you see that in these stories and that's all well and good. You get very different stories, but honestly, uh, Zoe Thorogood, I say this with respect, her art is really good. I had no idea what the hell this story was about. It was called Harley Quinn and the Seven Sidekicks. And for the life of me, I, I don't know what was going on. I, I, I didn't understand it. I, I read it and it was like, I don't understand. It was, um, I, 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 I didn't understand what was going on. I, I, it was, I wasn't even sure if it was actually starring Harley Quinn. I, was it was it just a bunch of like literally? I thought it was is this one girl pretending to be Harley or is a Harley Quinn? I I didn't get it. I straight up didn't get it. Um, and uh, I I don't un uh, yeah I didn't understand it. And I thought it was uh, I I was lost. I was straight up lost. And I'm not going to sit here. You know maybe if you understand it, you can explain it to me. But I don't want to waste my time on it because it's just not important. And if you got something to say. I just don't understand what what was it that Zoe Thorogood was trying to say with this story. I don't I don't get it. I don't get what she was trying to say. Was it? A, I don't know. I just straight up. It was completely over my head. I didn't get it. It I I, I didn't get it. So that's the first story. I I don't, I don't know. Did did you want to just my comments over the overall with the other stories as well, or did you want to? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have really have anything else to oh, add. Oh, okay. Well, add. I, I, I actually about. thought that the, the second story, voice traveling with Kyle Starks and Chris Schweitzer, I thought was a was a was a little bit better. Um, uh, you know, again, it was it was just really it was just really weird. Uh, because I uh, I wasn't really sure what it was. Again, it was called uh, the the Don Don is a as a past bully of Harley Quinn, and Harley Quinn suppressed the the memory of being bullied by this Don, and uh, and basically it ends with her just getting one up on a bully. And I didn't un- I I didn't see the purpose of this. I really I, again this reinforces the ideas. What what do these people think Harley Quinn is? I mean, th- there is no unifying thread of like sometimes she's good, sometimes she's insane. It- it's just all over the place, and I I I didn't get it. Uh, the final story, Golden Year, written by Sean Lewis. Uh, you know, these writers 
honestly, thank God I know they're better writers than this because I don't know what the point of this was. They're, the final one called Golden Years shows a dilapidated, old, disgusting-looking Harley Quinn just uh, a disgraceful-looking old lady. Uh, and it ends up, she, I'm not sure, it ends with her. She's just an old lady watching a, a TV about uh, an older version, an old lady Harley Quinn watching a version of herself on TV. And, and again, I I don't understand what the point was, but I, I, I hate to say this, but I can't recommend this comic. I just, for the life of me, I don't understand why anybody would find this entertaining. None of these stories were particularly good. I, I'm just absolutely shocked that this got editorial approval. I got to tell you, I'm so stunned. These are better writers than this. I, I can't believe Sean Lewis would want this to be in a comic or Kyle Starks. Kyle Starks just did the Peacemaker series. Did a fantastic job. And, and he, <laughs> I can't believe he wrote Voice Traveling. I'm stunned. I'm just, I'm absolutely stunned. But whatever, I, I, I don't understand this uh, Harley Quinn, but I, I think that this, these are all cover buys. I mean, there's a lot of gorgeous covers, by all means, go out and buy the covers to some of this. Uh, some of the covers are great, but man, try to make sense of these stories. I mean, I got to tell you, I, I was at a loss. Yeah, I, I can't. I said the same thing. I read them all and I was like, what was the point? Like I didn't, I mean, the third one, the the, the one with the old Harley was probably the most entertaining just because it was so ludicrous or her, you know, wanting to watch soap operas and the alien from alien shows up. It was just like really weird and out there, but it, yeah. at least it tried to do something. Um the the others were, yeah, the others were a bit problematic. So, yeah. Uh, all right. On to the last book we're going to talk about in detail. It's Nightwing number 107, written by Tom Taylor. Stephen Byrne is the artist. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one. It uh, was pretty interesting, I thought. I enjoyed this. Uh, I thought, you know, one of the most uh, controversial and uh, I, I think – dare I say divisive uh, areas of Nightwing's history was when he was Rick Grayson, when he, when he was shot in the head by KG beast in uh, bat in, during Batman's run, Tom King's Batman run, which uh, Tom King's Batman run was a very divisive run in, uh, amongst Batman readership. And it resulted in a, a huge long run uh, where most of Nightwing's run at that time when he was Rick Grayson was written by Dan Jurgens and, I don't think it was particularly well received, quite frankly. When he was Rick Grayson, he had a girlfriend, a love interest by the name of uh, Beatrice Bennett, uh, who he ultimately ended up breaking up with at the end of that when he gained his memory of Dick Grayson back. He broke up with her. Uh, but uh, kudos to Tom Taylor for making that an area of Rick Grayson. This I far more interesting than that Rick Grayson run ever was. And I say that with great respect to Dan Jurgens, but I just... You know, it wasn't it wasn't uh, a fan favorite. At least it wasn't my fan favorite. And in any event, it's interesting that there's a flashback that uh, Be Beatrice Bennett has got a new life as basically she's kind of a pirate. And I like how Tom Taylor sort of like gave her new life. She's basically a um, she is the I guess adopted daughter I guess of the quartermaster of the hold. And when he was Rick Grayson, somebody delivered a package to Rick Grayson, as was established last issue. And, uh, and, uh, the, uh, heartless wanted to find out what it was, what that package was that was within the hold. And ultimately the quartermaster who is the father, the, uh, the father of Beatrice ends up getting killed and she is the new quartermaster. Now she is doctor and she's actually, uh, I guess she's, <laughs> she's her, 
the legacy of her name is Blood. She's Captain Blood. And it's quite a cool name. And and uh, that's how Bloodhaven apparently got its name, which was interesting that, you know, it was Blood's Haven. So the legacy of Be- Beatrice's family legacy, even though it's not her blood legacy, she's got her brother named Kirk, who apparently was disowned by their father. Uh, he might be coming back into the fray at some point in the future. We don't we have not met him yet. But, you know, the idea that Blood's Blood's Haven, where Captain Blood resides, is Blood Blood's Haven. Well, that's how Bloodhaven got its name. That's kind of cool. Meanwhile, uh, Beatrice's uh, her the name of her crew is the crew of the Cross Keys, and it's her it's her job to essentially take care of the hold. And her her goal is uh, she believes that there's attempts that are being made on uh, on her life, and she wants to apprehend her brother Dirk Blood, and. Um, and uh, as she's talking with Dick Grayson, as she's talking with 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 Nightwing, Oracle can see the conversation that's happening, and it's it's very interesting to know that, of course, Dick Grayson is in love with with Oracle. Uh, we're all hoping at some point in the next few years they're going to get married, and here Oracle is watching Dick have a conversation with who Oracle, I'm assuming, must know that Beatrice is his ex lover, and uh, Beatrice asks him essentially for his her, his help to apprehend her brother, and ultimately Dick agrees uh, to help to help her uh, find her brother. And he even dresses up and look like looks like a pirate. And uh, Beatrice insists that for the duration of the mission, you will look like the cover of a romance novel. So I thought that was kind of funny. He didn't have to dress up to look like a pirate, but he he actually thought that that's that's what he was supposed to do. And <laughs> It was kind of funny. There were some nice, some nice comical moments here between Beatrice and Dick and Dick Grayson, and uh, but he does discard and take off his mask because he's so Oracle won't be able to follow them uh, on their adventures to try to find uh, uh, Dirk. Pardon me, Dirk Blood, and to apprehend him. And you know, uh, not a heck of a lot happens in this issue. Again, Taylor's known. Taylor does his what he's always does. He really focuses on the dialogue and the character moments. Uh, and there are character moments here. There's a deeply emotional moments where Beatrice mourns the loss of her father. And uh, at the same time, there's, you know, comical moments between Oracle and and uh, and Nightwing and between Nightwing and Beatrice. And quite frankly, I collected Nightwing and I read the Nightwing run during the Rick race and, and I... I've, I never felt the degree of emotion between Beatrice and Nightwing that I did in this issue. And um, uh, I, I shouldn't say that when, when Dick, when Rick Grayson broke up with, with Beatrice, I felt that that was emotional, but I really like what Tom Taylor's done here with Beatrice. She's now more interesting. She's more interesting that she has this secret past where she's essentially part of a pirate family that protects the hold. That's kind of cool. I think, you know, I would, I would love to see a, I would like even to see a miniseries with her and the history of her family legacy, the blood legacy, blood saving. That's really cool. I, I like that. So in any event, I thought it was, uh, I thought it worked. I, I, Again, while not a heck of a lot happened in the story per se, it's a nice setup. And now uh, criticism is still, once again, it's a side journey. It's a side adventure that's taken away Dick from all the adventures and all the plot lines that Tom Taylor has set up. Once again, this is a distraction. It's sending, rather than deal with Heartless and what have you, once again, we're getting a side, it's a sidetrack adventure. 
But damn if I'm not captivated and interested with this adventure and what where it's going to take uh, Nightwing. And bloody hell, if you're going to d- dress a character up like to look like a romantic pilot, why not make it Dick Grayson? Because he's probably the character that most fans would, would expect it from. So <laughs> anyways, it is what it is. I'm sure Nightwing fan, most of them are probably going to enjoy it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. So when I first saw this, it was announced again at San Diego. They showed the covers like, oh, Nightwing as a pirate. He's swashbuckling. Like how to make it make sense in present time and not have him, you know, not make it Elseworlds. Uh, I'm sure Tom Taylor doesn't want to be pegged as the Elseworlds guy between Deceased and uh, um, Knights of Steel or whatever. But, you know, those things sell well, so maybe he doesn't care. Uh, so that I, I thought that was interesting. You're 100% right when you talk about adding some real context to that Rick Grayson run and calling back to it and, and adding some emotion that really works as well. But at the end of the day, this is just fun, right? It's just, it's just fun. And I like Beatrice as a character. She might've been the, the best, might've been the only good thing about the Rick Grayson run because it really was a misfire in, in my mind. So to see her come back and, and have Tom Taylor minding that, uh, I think it really, really works. And you're dead on when you talk about how great the art is, really classic, good storytelling from Stephen Byrne. And yeah, as always, the scripting, the dialogue from from Taylor and the banter back and forth between Barbara and Dick really, really works. That, that's really where this shines. Because the other thing you're right about, I was going to mention it myself, is yeah, there's so many subplots and so many threads that are still going that we haven't had resolution to, whether it's, is that relationship going to take the next step? What about Dick's sister? What about Heartless? What about the you know, the Wayne Foundation? Uh, there's so many other things going on that we um, – or the Pennyworth Foundation, I should say. So many other things going on that we, where it feels like a storyline has started and we haven't gotten a conclusion and yet it's just pushed to the side. Um, so I you know, we'll give him credit. He has started some subplots, the one about this secret society and the hold or whatever that we've gotten to a lot sooner. So – you know, assuming he has a long enough run on Nightwing, he should get to everything uh, or most things eventually. He won't get to everything because simply DC doesn't like people to stay on titles that long. But that's the other part of it, right? Like you got to know that we as fans want the answers to these questions because you've been, you know, establishing them and planting interesting seeds. They're not going to let you stay on it forever. So maybe start thinking about giving us some answers to some of those long-term things, specifically Heartless. Um and yeah, it would be nice to know. It's almost like DC doesn't have any sort of um, hard and fast rule. You know, at one point it was rumored, never officially confirmed, um, that Dan Didio had a no marriage policy. They like couldn't marry the characters. That would be t- too much development, I guess, too much progression. Yeah. Marvel seems to have gone the same way with dissolving Mary Jane and Peter's marriage, which, God, that was 20 years ago now that they dissolved <laughs> it and haven't brought it back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it would be it would be nice. Like I, I do like Dick and Barbara together. It is it is interesting. So could we have a wedding? Would that be coming? I, I've heard nothing. I have no clue. I have no hints. Um, you know, there were rumors Nightwing 100 came and went. I, yeah, and I, I I I wasn't not thinking it was going to happen on Nightwing 100 because they didn't promote it. And if this was going to happen, they would promote the hell of it. Look at how much they have promoted Green Arrow and Black Canary's wedding. And that's Green Arrow and Black Canary. This is Batgirl and Nightwing. Batgirl and Robin really would get a lot of promotion because they would even get like mainstream news coverage, what have you. But anyway, gone off on a tangent. This is good. I'm enjoying it. But yeah, there are a few little nitpicks with, uh, with the Nightwing title overall. 
mostly it's just that I want he's Tom Taylor's planted good seeds and I want those to pay off. I want to know. I want the answers to my questions. So anyway, as I said, that does it for the uh, single issues we're going to talk about in this particular episode. Do have a few collections. There's a deceased box set, which collects all the deceased. So the, the deceased, the original series, also deceased unkillables, deceased dead planet, deceased hope at world's end and deceased war of the undead gods. So the entire Tom Taylor, Trevor Harrison, epic, uh, highly recommend that. Really, really good. Very emotional. Also, Batman Three Jokers is getting a trade paperback. I don't know why it's getting a trade paperback. I mean, it sold well. We waited forever for it. And then ultimately, the story, in my mind, was terrible. Great art. But yeah, probably, in my mind, the worst... The, the thing I've read from Jeff Johns that I've liked the least just didn't work at all. And then speaking of Philip Kenny Johnson, we were talking about him earlier. Uh, his Last Gods, uh, which is sort of... Um, or Last God, the Fellspire Chronicles, which is uh, this DC black label stuff that he's done, um, which doesn't have anything to do with any DC heroes, but it's just uh, a fantasy novel uh, or fantasy story that's absolutely fantastic and really showcases his ability to um, to build story. Uh, Dan Waters does some of the writing as well. Ricardo Federici's gorgeous art in it. So uh, highly, highly recommend that. Uh, that's book one. So it collects Last God 1 through 12, Last God Tales, uh, The Book of Ages, number one, and Last God Song of Last Children, number one. So more to come um, with Last God. And then Teen Titans Go box set, uh, which collects uh, – this is the second one. It collects uh, Teen Titans Go Volume 4, Teen Titans Go Volume 5, and Teen Titans Go Weirder Things. If you're a fan of Teen Titans Go, look for that. So – uh, that does it for the collections. Uh, Moment of Truth, Rocky. You're going to have to pick your Ooh. book of the week. Uh, it's, uh, what are you considering? Well, I, I'm going to narrow it down. It's as I'm, And I'm thinking out loud as I'm saying this. Uh, my top three would be World's Finest, uh, Green Lantern War Journal, and Nightmare Country. I really enjoyed those three. Uh, huh. if, I have to, uh, if I have to pick between those three right now, I got to say the one that resonated with me the most probably overall in terms of impressive both in story and art, I'm going to go with Green Lantern War Journal, PKJ. I, I really enjoyed it. Would be the Man, one. I really I, thought we were going to be on the same page uh, with this. And then you said three that really stood out for you. And I was like, yes, we are going to be on the same because I also have three <laughs> that really stood out for me, but they are not. Well, you said World's Finest, right? So that one we have in common. Okay. Um, but the other two are different. So I thought the uh, Jay Garrick Flash was a lot of fun. Uh, and I enjoyed the start of that. And it's got some uh, intriguing questions. Really liked the Dr. Elemental character. Uh, yeah. And then speaking of fun, I had a blast reading Justice League versus Godzilla versus Kong. And how okay. can I not pick a book that it roars when you open it? Uh, <laughs> so I thought that was really fantastic yeah. as well. But But ultimately... As much as I enjoyed The Flash, as uh, fun as uh, Justice League, Godzilla, Kong was, and, and maybe once they start fighting and if I get to see Batman in a giant mech, maybe, maybe that will be book, book of the week for me when we get to a subsequent issue. But I got to go with World's Finest uh, number 20 from Mark Wade. And the reason that one kind of uh, takes the cake for me is I, I mentioned uh, Kingdom Come not being like one of my favorites. And, and I think part of it was just 
by the time I got a chance to read Kingdom Come, like it, it had been out for a while and everybody was talking about, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Like it was built up so big in my mind. There was kind of no way it possibly could have led up to uh, or, or lived up to the expectations in my mind, like yeah. as the greatest comic ever written, uh, which happens from time to time. Um <laughs> But like I said, when I was talking about uh, this issue in detail, adding this context and seeing the kind of the origins of Magog, it's fleshing out that Kingdom Come story that's like 25 years old for me. Like it's because that was one of the things that I didn't really like about it. Magog was in a way this like mustache twirling villain, right? Like he was such a huge threat. He was so dangerous. He was so malevolent. There was nothing redeeming. You couldn't really see his point of view. Couldn't really relate to him. He was just almost like this natural this walking natural disaster that uh the heroes couldn't stop and eventually they got to get superman um involved to stop him uh so uh, you know adding some context seeing him as a little kid when he's vulnerable whatever it's it's in my mind it's improving on or adding contextual information to uh, kingdom come the you know that that two-part story that is 25 years old and that that's that's really impressive so the seeds had been planted uh, previously uh, mentioned in various articles and we talked about it here. Um, and now that it's, it's paying off, Wade's doing a fantastic job. He's showing what a, a, a incredible writer he is. So, uh, and it, you know, it does help that he wrote the original kingdom come story. So yeah. he's adding to his own, adding to his own story, which is way better than when you do something like it's happening in Hawkman or, yeah. Uh, or Hawk Girl, rather, or, or other retcons we've seen, Brian Michael Bendis adding to the yeah. destruction of Krypton or whatever. Like, when it's your own story, you want to go back and add stuff, I'm, yeah. I'm more okay and, with that. And it, it should say, I should say that uh, uh, Mark Way did do an interview with uh, John Cetris on Word Balloon, and he indicated that there were some plot points that he didn't want to, he knows some things that Alex Ross, co-writer of Kingdom Come, Alex Ross, well, he was, he knew that he, he confirmed everything with Alex Ross. He didn't want to step on. There are certain characters that Alex Ross and plot points that Alex Ross that he consulted with Alex Ross on in terms of not wanting to step on his toes on certain characters or change certain things. And so he did uh, just, I thought that was interesting and very, very respectful because they did co-write Kingdom Come and uh, Alex Ross, obviously, uh, that's his passion, was one of his probably most famous works as well. So, Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's kind of the the... Well, Marvels was really the book that put Alex Ross on the map, but Kingdom Come followed that uh, quickly right. and kind of solidified his status as a superstar. So anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, yeah, hoping to have a New York Comic Con episode out tomorrow, talk about some of the news there. And then I should have some other interviews coming out toward uh, toward the end of, uh, of the week and on into next week, heading into the holidays, 12 days of the comic source and what have you. So uh, look for that. Anything uh, to add, Rocky? Any last thoughts? Uh, not really, not really. I just, uh, you know, I wish I was in New York this past weekend. It sounded like a lot of people had a lot of fun. And uh, I guess maybe, I, I don't know if uh, I'll, I guess maybe, maybe we will talk about what some of DC's announcements or not maybe later this week. We'll, we'll see, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay. Yeah, I haven't gone the last two years. Uh, and I was I was planning on going this year and I had to, had to cancel about two weeks ahead of time. Um, next year, it's definitely a priority. Definitely going to be there. So, uh, all right. Well, that's going to do it, everybody. We appreciate your support as always. Don't forget, if you're listening to the audio only, head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel so you don't miss out on our spotlights or any of the other content we put out. So, comic space boom, exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Ring the notification bell. Leave some comments. We get great conversations going there. Uh, and subscribe to the channel. And conversely, if you're checking us, checking us out on YouTube and you always watch the spotlight on YouTube, we really appreciate it. But don't forget to subscribe to the comic source 
uh, audio only channel on whatever podcast feed you use, podcast platform. Um, so you can be sure and listen to all our other uh, audio only content. So again, we appreciate the support. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Big DC week. We'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.